0: Radio Westeros, episode 55, The Winds of Winter Primer, part 2, Journeys. Boilers all books! Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere and with me here today is Yoke Boy.
2: Yeah, hi there and welcome back for part 2 of our Winds of Winter Primer series. In this episode we'll be discussing Bran, Aya, Sansa and Davos, all characters that are in far-flung locations at the end of A Dance with Dragons, but whom we see undertaking return journeys at some point in The Winds of Winter. And as a spoiler alert, we'll say that we'll be including analysis of both Sansa and Aya's The Winds of Winter preview chapters in our analysis today. So
0: today, we'll be starting with a look at Bran in the Green Seer's cave north of the Wall and what we expect we'll see from him going forward with a special segment on the identity of Coldhands. Then we'll swing south to Braavos and catch up with Arya at the House of Black and White before returning to Westeros and the Vale.
2: Yeah, there we'll check in on Sansa, now known as Elaine Stone, and we'll talk about what the Winds of Winter might bring for her. And finally we'll catch up with where A Dance with Dragons left Davos Seaworth, how his arc relates to the Stark siblings, and what we expect from him as the Winds of Winter kicks off.
0: This episode is almost certainly the longest we've ever produced, and also marks the first time we've chosen to remove an entire segment due to length. Look for this outtake to be available on our patron feed in the coming days, and don't forget that since the first episode of this series, We've introduced a weekly live stream where we get to discuss our point of view characters in even greater depth. So if you're hoping for
2: more about any of today's characters, you're in luck. Yeah, join us on Saturdays at 5pm Eastern Time on our YouTube channel to check out those live streams. And before we begin today, it's time to thank our patrons. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons, and our deepest thanks as always to our Flaming Lightbringer patron TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron Peter, and our Pale as Milkglass patrons Multude, Pepper, Whitney, Kelly, Laura, Daniel, John Weirgarion and Sister Winter.
0: Thanks, as always, to all of you, and if you're interested in becoming a patron, check out our campaign at patreon.com slash radioestros to see what benefits you could gain by supporting us. And now, it's time to get started with part two of our Winds of Winter Primer.
2: The strongest trees are rooted in the dark places of the earth. Darkness will be your cloak, your shield, your mother's milk. Darkness will make you strong.
0: Many readers know that due to bookbinding limitations, among other reasons, the Battles of Ice and Fire, up north and in Marine were shifted from A Dance with Dragons to The Winds of Winter, However, there is evidence at the Cushing Library at Texas A&M University, where George donated a personal archive of over 300 boxes of material that includes an earlier Dance with Dragons manuscript, that a Bran chapter was also moved along.
2: But before we consider what's in that chapter and where Bran will be headed in the Winds of Winter... Let's first get ourselves up to speed by recapping what happened to Bran in dance and what that might mean for the long view. Being one of the POV characters without a chapter in Feast, Bran's dance journey followed his A Storm of Swords story where he had escaped the danger of Winterfell and was headed to the far north with his companions Jojen and Meera Reed and the gentle giant Hodor. Their ongoing quest, which speaks to the mystical aspect of Bran's arc, aims to unite Bran with the mysterious Three-Eyed Crow.
0: Towards the end of his final A Storm of Swords chapter, the group rest and tell stories at the Nightfort, where the theme of young Bran's fear of monsters is explored, and the timely appearance of a dark figure gives them a fright. Thankfully, the figure turns out to be Samuel Tarly, who, with Gilly and her baby, have been brought safely to the wall by a peculiar character Tarly has named Coldhands. Sam knows who Bran is, but promises not to tell anyone about their meeting, and will have to wait for winds or beyond to see if Sam ever decides to spill those beans to Jon Snow.
2: After passing the Black Gate with Sam's help, Bran and co leave the night's watchmen behind as they begin the new leg of their journey, now north of the wall, where the cold and barren landscape is unforgiving to men grown, let alone a crippled nine-year-old boy. And so, the dance story for Bran is all about hardship from the offset.
0: Fortunately, Coldhands proves to be as essential as he is enigmatic. Operating as some sort of assistant to the Three-Eyed Crow, Coldhands rides a 10-foot tall giant elk and guides the group towards Bran's destiny. But with his face covered, his hands black, swollen and cold, readers have good reason to wonder who or what the absolute heck is Coldhands. He appears to be a man of the Night's Watch with black clothes and eyes, yet shares certain qualities with whites. And we'll be looking at the mystery of and theories about his identity in our next segment.
2: With cold hands to protect him, Hodor to carry him, Jojen believing in his powers, Amira catching fish and feeding him, Bran's companions all play important roles in his mystical quest. And given all are serving Bran the reader is assured that some sort of great and powerful destiny awaits the young man.
0: Bran finds himself skin-changing his wolf Summer increasingly to escape the poor conditions, but unbeknownst to his other companions, he's also been using the same trick on Hodor. Given the man's simple mind, Bran meets with little resistance, although Hodor is very frightened and disturbed to be mentally invaded like this. Bran enjoys the freedom of Hodor's body, yet he's committing a horrific act upon Hodor's person, something which he's likely unaware is considered an abomination amongst those who practice skin changing, as we learned from the Varamir prologue in A Dance with Dragons.
2: Whether Bran is going to be caught in the act, whether the Three-Eyed Crow already knows, or whether Bran will damage Hodor are all valid questions that we expect to see explored in The Winds of Winter. And what this all says about Bran's character has been the focus of much debate over the years. Is this the habit of a boy too young to know any better, who simply wishes he wasn't crippled, Or should we be concerned that with fantastic powers might come some amount of corruptibility? Does the body stealing reflect a nascent darkness in Bran's character?
0: In addition, it seems likely that Bran has eaten human flesh as a human as well. Cold Hands, apparently a Night's Watch ranger before his death, takes a detour to deal with some of the mutineers from Craster's. He brings back, quote, a sow for the group to roast. This is a clever reference by George to the fact that amongst some practitioners of cannibalism, human meat apparently was once known as long pig. This isn't the only place in A Dance with Dragons that we witness the theme of cannibalism, but here it's brought to the fore to underline the desperate place Bran finds himself in. Traveling towards the fringes of civilization, a part of the world everyone else is running from.
2: Toward the end of Bran one in a Dance with Dragons, as the group realize that Coldhands shows no signs of being a living, breathing man, the boy calls Coldhands a monster. "Your monster," comes the reply, keeping in mind the theme of Bran being afraid of monsters he now realises he has one of his own. Jojen responds to a weakened Mira wondering about where they are and what they should do now. We go with the ranger. We have come too far to turn back now, Mira. We would never make it back to the wall alive. We go with Bran's monster or we die.
0: So Bran finds himself in a place where monsters could attack him at any time. But now at least... Bran has one on his side. In Bran Cold Coldhands escorts the group to a hill. His elk had died of exhaustion some time ago and been butchered to provide sustenance, as the rangers said a prayer in a mysterious language. The situation is bleaker than bleak, and the ravens surrounding Coldhands convey that the dead might be close. The group have no choice but to persevere up the steep hill and through woodland to reach the Three-Eyed Crow's cave.
2: Unbeknownst to the group, there are whites under the snow and Hodor is tripped, sending Bran tumbling. Summer intervenes to aid Bran, who skin changes Hodor, to join the fight with an iron sword from the Winterfell Crypts in his grasp, no doubt fulfilling some of the knightly ambitions he held before his fall. And behind them, Mira drags the weakened Jojen, who has been mentioning his fated day to die, and seemed to be almost at the end of his strength. However, all make it safely to the cave, although Cold Hands is left outside, and remembering he wasn't able to cross the threshold of the wall due to magical warding, he faced similar limitations here.
0: The safe conclusion of this part of the journey is a great victory for Bran, who, having encountered some of the monsters he'd heard of in Old Nan's tales, had fought them off and ultimately crawled to safety, in doing so overcoming the fear that had been so central to his internal monologue, harking back to his father's words in this very first chapter, the only time a man can be brave is when he's afraid. Expect the themes of fear and opposing monsters to grow ever stronger in Brand's Winds of Winter story.
2: And once in the cave, which is a strange kind of oasis from the horrors and cold of the outside, we are introduced to a child of the forest, one who had fought off the White's invasion with fire. They are described as such... She was a girl, but smaller than Aya, her skin dappled like a doze beneath a cloak of leaves. Her eyes were queer, large and liquid, golden green, slitted like a cat's eyes.
0: And so Bran meets more mythical creatures right out of Old Nan's Tales. Those stories, along with some tidbits of mystical wisdom from Maester Lewin, evidently provide essential groundwork for Bran's greater story and help implant George's world-building in our minds. The interesting thing for readers now is deciphering where all of this is leading. It's noteworthy that George has said the uber-mysterious Green Men, who could be linked to the Children of the Forest, will come to the fore later in the books. While that confession puts us in mind of the final book, expect to learn much and more about the Children of the Forest, The Last Long Night, and the others via the exposition of Brand's point of view in The Winds of Winter.
2: And the children are not the only curious beings to be found in the cave. After a journey deep into its bowels, where weirwood roots adorn the walls and bones litter the pathways, we arrive at our destination as the three eyed crow is finally revealed.
0: His body was so skeletal and his clothes so rotted that at first Brand took him for another corpse. A dead man propped up so long that the roots had grown over him, under him and through him. What skin the Corpse Lord showed was white, save for a bloody blotch that crept up his neck onto his cheek. His white hair was fine and thin as root hair and long enough to brush against the earthen floor. Roots coiled round his legs like wooden serpents, one burrowed through his breeches into the desiccated flesh of his thigh to emerge again from his shoulder. A spray of dark red leaves sprouted from his skull, and gray mushrooms spotted his brow. A little skin remained, stretched across his face, tight and hard as white leather, but even that was fraying, and here and there the brown and yellow bone beneath was poking through. Are you the three-eyed crow? Bran heard himself say. A three-eyed crow should have three eyes. He has only one, and that one red. Brand could feel the eye staring at him, shining like a pool of blood in the torchlight. Where his other eye should have been, a thin white root grew from an empty socket down his cheek and into his neck. A crow. The pale lord's voice was dry. His lips moved slowly, as if they had forgotten how to form words. Once, I, black of garb, and black of blood.
2: So that was Bran meeting the Three-Eyed Crow, a character we met in the Duncan Egg novellas named Brynden Rivers, also known as Bloodraven. The appendix further confirms this is the Three-Eyed Crow that we're seeing here, if there were any lingering doubts, which for us there aren't. Lord Bloodraven was a legitimised Targaryen bastard, and the spymaster who oversaw defences during the Blackfire rebellions, reputed to be a sorcerer, but always acting for what he believed to be the good of the realm. His murder of Aenys Blackfire though, was a step too far, and Bloodraven was brought to justice, where he chose to take the black. Accompanied to the wall by his kinsman Maester Aemon and an entourage of raven's teeth, a collection of skilled archers loyal to him, Brynden soon climbed the ranks at Castle Black and became the Lord Commander in 239 AC before he mysteriously disappeared beyond the wall in 252 AC.
0: So this chapter reveals what happened to Lord Bloodraven, so-called for a birthmark on his face, though the nickname also hints to his mastery and use of ravens. The fandom's collective realisation that Brynden Rivers, with skin-changing abilities coming through his Blackwood heritage, has been controlling flocks of ravens that have protected Sam, Gilly, and Bran himself, has caused a review of the roles of ravens and Brendan Rivers in the books. From the raven on Mormon's shoulder to the innocuous whispers in the wind sometimes described, readers have scoured the text to find what parts were secretly influenced by Lord Bloodraven.
2: And going forward, will Bloodraven continue with his reconnaissance mission to use a thousand eyes and one in order to control fate itself? Or will Brand learn the necessary skills for himself? The conclusion of Brand Two suggests the latter. When Brand converses further with this strange corpse of a man who has beckoned him over many difficult miles into the cold unknown, he says this: "I'm here. Only I'm broken. Will you will you fix me? My legs, I mean." No. Said the pale lord, That is beyond my powers. Bran's eyes filled with tears. We came such a long way. The chamber echoed to the sound of the Black River. You will never walk again, Bran, the pale lips promised, but you will fly.
0: So Bran articulates the reward he truly desires after his long journey and current situation. Unsurprisingly, He wants to be physically fixed, no doubt still wishing he could be a knight. However, Bloodraven isn't in the fixing game. He wants Bran to fly, and in Bran's final dance chapter, we see the boy skin-changing ravens. Brynden is named the last greenseer within the cave, but now the reader begins to wonder if Bran could simply be a long-term replacement, and so Bran must be caught between the excitement of his own magical powers and the grim realities of becoming an immobile, skeletal, cave-dwelling greenseer. It hardly seems like every boy's dream, almost like being plugged into the Matrix while your real body is left to rot.
2: But soon Bran is being prepared to use the Weirwoods, an elaborate network of trees that contain the memories of the events their carved eyes have witnessed. The boy is told... In time, you will see well beyond the trees themselves. Bloodraven has also lived well beyond his years, and so Bran is being primed, ready to sit endlessly upon his weirwood throne as a greenseer. Bran is fed some weirwood paste in order to accelerate his integration, which some parts of the fandom find suspicious.
0: Perhaps unsurprisingly, when Bran begins his green-seeing journey and sees his now-dead father, the boy wants to communicate. Brynden teaches Brand that the past cannot be changed by green-seeing, and so Ned can't hear him. He heard a whisper on the wind, a rustling amongst the leaves. You cannot speak to him. Try as you might. I know. I have my own ghost, Bran. A brother that I loved. A brother that I hated. A woman I desired. Through the trees I see them still, but no word of mine has ever reached them. The past remains the past. We can learn from it, but we cannot change it.
2: And so Bloodraven conveys the rules of the game. However, in spite of Bloodraven being almost omniscient, it might be wise to remember that he is not infallible. Bran is, after all, on a literary level a more important character than him in this main series. If Brendan sets limits to his teachings, they could denote true boundaries. But on the other hand, they could also be limits that Bran is fated to one day break. Bran is presently a novice greenseer, but who knows how powerful he may become.
0: For the moment, though, the boy will have to continue with his training if he is to hit the lofty heights of an exceptional greenseer, and at the end of Brand three, he experiences a burst of visions of past events as witnessed by the great Winterfell Hartree. In the first of them was a girl who looked like Arya, Bran's own deceased auntie, Lyanna Stark. In the final vision, it says... Then, as he watched, a bearded man forced a captive down onto his knees before the heart tree. A white-haired woman stepped toward them through a drift of dark red leaves, a bronze sickle in her hand.
2: So this vision could be the tree being initially activated by means of human blood sacrifice, perhaps even tens of thousands of years ago, recalling that an unharmed weirwood will grow forever it seems that George wants to use Bran's abilities as exposition for all manner of important snippets of history. We think this is a tremendously exciting place for A Dance with Dragons to end and The Winds of Winter to pick up. And the fandom always has a great time discussing visions, and with many more to come in Winds, we think we'll be in for a treat here. Bran being able to experience the distant past from times before Westeros had written language and being able to see his own more recent family history gives George a huge range of opportunities to blow our minds. We could, for example, see The Last Hero or any other characters of lore and legend we could see Brandon the Builder resting in the godswood the day he completed Winterfell. Or we could see the others as they were and learn about their backstory.
0: And of course, we will no doubt be privy to more recent visions, those that might pertain to Bran himself, or at least the issues surrounding his family. In A Dance with Dragons, Theon experiences the Winterfell heart tree, saying his name on at least two occasions, and then in his Winds of Winter sample chapter, as he's held captive in Stannis's tower, there's a raven that says his name. Now, It's commonly believed that it was Bran in all three instances, and it's worth noting that all of those Theon chapters occur at after Bran 3, the final Bran chapter in A Dance with Dragons, so we may yet get to see Bran's side of those interactions during the Winds of Winter.
2: And on another note, for years fans have discussed the RLJ theory that Jon Snow is the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and Liana Stark. However, with Ned dead, there are now a distinct lack of witnesses. Readers have therefore theorised that Bran could be the one to inform the audience of Jon's true heritage, and perhaps status as a true-born king, if the pair were married. Bran could experience the Tower of Joy, or watch Rhaegar and Lianus theorised secret wedding through weird eyes, at the Isle of Faces perhaps. Is worth noting Brand's vision of Liana is the only time we see her on page. Is that a precedent to revisit her in The Winds of Winter with Brand's vision providing snippets of her story? We'll have to see.
0: For what it's worth, while we think Brand might be the one to serve us the big, juicy RLJ reveal, expect the full story to come from several sources and threads that coalesce. In typical Martin fashion, we'll likely continue to see references and clues in other storylines, including Sam at the Citadel and from other point of views who were alive at the time, Barriston, John Connington, Jamie, etc. There's also the possibility that a witness or two might step forth in the person of someone like Howland Reed, who was at the Tower of Joy, or Richard Lodmouth, who might have been with Rhaegar when he met Lyanna in the Riverlands.
2: And if we really do get a big RLJ reveal in The Winds of Winter, we can't wait to see how it all unfurls. It will be an iconic moment in literature. We struggle to find a moment more hotly anticipated by readers and we will surely savour every last word. Bring it on, George. It's time. And so there are many reasons to be excited about upcoming brand chapters. However, with all the emphasis on historic visions, we should remember that George would be doing Bran himself a disservice if he turned him into a sort of exposition machine. It was a difficult journey for Bran to make it all the way to the cave, and he really deserves his own story and character growth.
0: And so we expect to see some master and apprentice dynamics play out. An apprentice is never helpless for long in these types of stories. There is also often friction between the two, as the apprentice seeks a degree of independence from the shadow of their master.
2: And if Bran is experiencing a lot of visions, expect at least some to be pertinent to him in some way. This won't feel like exposition as much, and will allow Bran to practice his skills in a way that is meaningful to him. For example, could a vision remind him of Jaime's push from the tower, which thus far is still a foggy event in his memory? If so, how will Bran feel to have tapped such information from the weirnet? Will he seek revenge on Jaime, or will he be more forgiving? It's noteworthy that in A Dance with Dragons, Bloodraven advises Bran to embrace darkness. Although we think Bran is hardly likely to transform into a supervillain in the cave, he is about to gain a superpower of sorts, and so it will be interesting to see how he handles the responsibility.
0: And the process of obtaining a new special skill is not exclusive to Bran. His siblings, Arya and Sansa, are about to excel in their training as an assassin and a political player, respectively, In our recent Heroes episode, we suggested that all three were following the same literary track, one that resembles a hero's journey. A character starts off at home, sets off on an adventure, begins to learn a new skill, meets a mentor, surpasses the mentor in some way, and returns home with the new skill and a new perspective.
2: And so all three characters currently have masters or mentors and are in a training phase. But this phase of learning won't last forever, and sooner or later the student must shed the master to become independent and able to present their newfound skills. For us, and for the typical hero's journey, the circle isn't complete until the hero returns home, which in this case is Winterfell. There have always been suggestions from fans that Bran could remain in the cave for good. But the chance to come home from a long journey provides a very rich source of storytelling opportunities for writers, an especially popular archetype where children are the protagonists.
0: And whether there's a stark convergence in Winds or beyond, it will certainly be amazing to see Bran, Arya and Sansa reunite at Winterfell as changed, developed characters there wouldn't be a dry eye in the house all three would be able to use their new skills in combination which could truly denote a time for wolves
2: however for now the trio must continue to develop further and for brand that will mean harnessing visions whilst living in a dark cave we can wonder about the brand chapter that george omitted from winds He has so far refrained from reading it publicly or providing it as a sample. Could something important occur in Bran's first chapter of Winds? Is that why George might have withheld it as a sample? We've wondered if Bran sees or does something revelatory about Theon, or if perhaps Green Dreamer Jojen might finally meet his end.
0: Yet yeah, we mentioned that he's been talking about the day he will die for some time now, after seeming incredibly weak following the journey. Then how would Bran take it if that was the case? And what of Mira, she who made the perilous journey because of other people's visions? And Hodor, who has his body stolen by his young friend? And what about Leif and the Children of the Forest? Are they just harmless Ewoks or will they reveal themselves to be more complex and dark than anticipated or perhaps something in between? And what happened to Coldhands outside the cave? Will he find a new elk or assist the group back to the wall when the time is ripe? Will we ever meet Benjamin Stark beyond the wall?
2: There's also the matter of a certain Valyrian steel sword. Back in 2018, George responded to a question asked by Ashea from History of Westeros, where he confirmed that Bloodraven took Dark Sister, the ancestral sword that once belonged to Queen Visenya Targaryen, with him to the wall. This means Dark Sister may well be in the cave, just waiting to be wielded by someone. Could Bran find the blade? Could it help him get home? or could it even be gifted to someone else at a later date?
0: Only the Winds of Winter knows the answer to this plethora of questions, and ultimately we think we can all agree that the brand chapters in the Winds of Winter have the potential to be among the most intriguing of all, and that's saying something. For now, and before we move on to discuss Arya, let's focus on one immediate mystery that Brand's story in A Dance with Dragons left us with. Who, or what, is Cold Hands? You killed them! You and the ravens! Their faces were all torn and their eyes were gone. They were your brothers. I saw the wolves had ripped their clothes up, but I could still tell their cloaks were black, like your hands. Who are you? Why are your hands black?
2: Once the heart ceased to beat, a man's blood runs down into his extremities where it thickens and congeals. His hands and feet swell up and turn as black as pudding. The rest of him becomes as white as milk. As we've heard, in A Dance with Dragons, Bran travels with a mysterious ally that Samwell had named Hands. With his cold hands, his covered face, and his general whiteness, readers' alarm bells go off whenever he's around. Because don't we all love a good mystery?
0: Yes, we certainly do. But the question as to who and what cold hands is, is more perplexing than most of the character identity mysteries you'll find in the series. And so we're going to talk through the evidence and explain exactly why that is.
2: So first of all, a candidate many fans had formerly believed to fit the cold hands bill must be discarded. In A Game of Thrones, Jon Snow's uncle Benjen Stark set out on a ranging mission beyond the wall. What happened to him is a mystery, but we now know one thing that didn't happen to him. Benjen did not become cold hands.
0: In 2015, Redditor Honeybird took a trip to the Cushing Library at Texas A&M University where, as we mentioned, George had donated an original Dance with Dragons manuscript, which was adorned by various notes from his editor, Anne Grohl. On a page where Coldhands made an appearance, Anne had written in, Is this Benjen? To which George replied with a simple no. So, with a single word, George himself has debunked the Benjen is Cold Hands theory, and therefore we must examine further evidence and other candidates.
2: So, one thing that seems certain is that Cold Hands was a man of the Night's Watch, which was a central piece of evidence in the Benjen theory. When Sam first sees him in A Storm of Swords, the description goes, Beneath the trees, a man muffled head to heels, in mottled blacks and greys, sat astride an elk. He also calls Samuel brother, and so it seems we can narrow the field down to men of the Night's Watch.
0: There's also the question of Coldhand's mortality. In the first chapter he appears in, we're left with a cliffhanger. Only when he grasped the offered hand did he realize that the rider wore no glove. His hand was black and cold, with fingers hard as stone. So, George has no problems with immediately hinting at the undead nature of this cold hands. In A Dance with Dragons, it's revealed he also doesn't breathe, that Summer dislikes his smell, and he's often described in association with death. So it appears that Coldhands is a white of some sort, yet his eyes aren't the sapphire blue of a white like Othor's, but instead are described as jet black. His behavior is also different from that of a white. For one thing, he speaks, and he seems principled when he sets off to deliver justice to the mutineers from Craster's, and his entire raison d'etre seems to be to protect Bran. In many ways, Coldhands is the anti-white if you compare him to the blue-eyed sort, and one could view the blackness of his eyes as symbolic of his allegiance to the Night's Watch. But if Coldhands' status as an undead ranger is made plain, figuring out his roots are more complex. As Bran enters the cave, he asks if the whites will now kill Coldhands. Leaf tells him, no, they killed him long ago.
2: And we're sure you'll agree that long ago is such a vague time frame, it gives us a wide window. It's worth remembering that the children of the forest live for hundreds of years, and so when Leaf says long ago, perhaps we should not underestimate her meaning. This tidbit of information seemingly rules out any modern characters such as Waymar Royce or Will from the Game of Thrones prologue being cold hands. A better guess at this juncture might be that our ranger was one of the raven's teeth. This band of archers were Bloodraven's personal guard, many of whom were as loyal to Bloodraven off the battlefield as they were on it. When he took the black, many of them followed and so fans wonder if one of the raven's teeth might have been with Bloodraven when he disappeared and now continues to serve him after death. We think it's a neat idea that might be as good as any of the cold hands theories, yet there are still things that might trouble us about this conclusion, so let's take a closer look.
0: Yeah, in brand two of A Dance with Dragons, the boy recalls that Coldhands had killed his elk. It had been twelve days since the elk had collapsed for the third and final time, since Coldhands had knelt beside it in the snowbank and murmured a blessing in some strange tongue as he slit its throat.
2: So keen-eyed readers have noted that this strange tongue, spoken to an animal, might be the true tongue. This ancient dialect predates even the Old Tongue and comes from the bygone animistic era when the children of the forest ruled over the land. The fact that Cold Hands is likely speaking this language here confuses the issue of his age. Could he really be that ancient?
0: However, we see a solution to this problem when we consider Bloodraven. Some fans wonder if the explanation to who or what Cold Hands is is that Blood Raven is skin changing the body of a dead ranger. In this case, the use of the true tongue might simply be evidence that Bloodraven has spent extended time with the children and has learned their language, which is not at all unlikely.
2: So, all in all, we think that the notion that Cold Hands could be a member of the Raven's teeth. Perhaps now controlled by Blood Raven, is a good one. This is the best conclusion we could reach, and we know there are other fans who have been thinking along similar lines. Critics point to Leaf's comment about Cold Hands being killed long ago. Well, Cold Hands would have died roughly 48 years before in this case. Whether a child of the forest would consider this long ago is certainly open for debate, yet we should remember that Leaf was speaking to human children and was perhaps therefore using terminology they could relate to.
0: For most fans who believe Cold Hands to be far older than the Raven's Teeth, wonder if he could be an historic figure like the Night's King. Our counter to him being this old is an examination of Coldhand's state of decay. He might have swollen hands and pale skin, yet are his descriptions really fitting for someone, even a white, that has existed for thousands of years.
2: And we also have a short quote from George on the matter. He says As for the knight's King, in the books he is a legendary figure akin to Land the Clever and Brandon the Builder, and no more likely to have survived to the present day than they have.
0: Overall, make of all this what you will, but we think Coldhands being a former raven's tooth, now a blood raven meat puppet, makes the most sense. Although it's by no means a sure thing. Whether the mystery of cold hands will ever be revealed on page is also open for debate, but if there is a reveal of some sort, probably from dialogue between Bran and Bloodraven, we think it's very likely to come in The Winds of Winter, yet another reason to be excited for the upcoming novel.
2: Yes, it is. And besides whether we'll get a cold hands reveal, there are so many other questions. Will he play any further role in the story or has his purpose been served? And was it him that buried the old warhorn and dragonglass which were dug up by ghost near the fist of the first men? So many questions. Let's hope we get some answers soon enough.
0: OK, and we're going to move on now and coming up in our next segment We'll be discussing another of the Stark siblings, one who might have a surprising intersection with something from the cave, so stay with us.
2: I can see the truth in your eyes. You have the eyes of a wolf and a taste for blood.
0: Back in 2014, the very first episode of Radio Westeros was an analysis of the Mercy sample chapter from the Winds of Winter paired with some of our favorite Arya theories. Now, after a long sojourn with only a few brief cameos, Arya Stark at last returns to Radio Westeros, and we'll have a chance shortly to review the sample chapter and a couple of those theories as well. We'll also discuss how, after the events of the Mercy chapter, we hope that the Winds of Winter might also see Arya return to Westeros.
2: But before we go there, let's check in with where A Dance With Dragons left Arya. Having arrived at Braavos and the House of Black and White in a feast for crows, Arya is continuing her training with the so-called Kindly Man of the Faceless Men, training that ostensibly requires her to surrender her identity as Arya and become no one. Thematically, over the course of her story, we've seen Arya take on numerous identities, 18 by our count in 2014, and so taking on a new one shouldn't be that hard. Except for the part where she must also let go of Arya Stark internally, which proves a monumentally difficult task given her persistent thirst for vengeance and her habit of sharing her dreams with a she-wolf Roaming the Riverlands.
0: Aria went from having three point of view chapters set in Bravos in A Feast for Crows to just two in A Dance with Dragons, which nonetheless combined to make her the only point of view character to have chapters in all five books. The first A Dance with Dragons chapter, The Blind Girl, took up where A Feast for Crows had left off, with Aria temporarily blinded by her master at the House of Black and White following her execution of the Night's Watch deserter, Daron, and embarking on the next phase of her training. As blind Beth, Arya must learn to observe the world around her without her eyes, and she spends her days as a beggar, carefully listening for news, which she then brings back to the kindly man, and learning to tell the truth from lies, even without sight, by playing what she calls the lying game with the waif, one of the priests at the House of Black and White, who's been tasked with instructing her.
2: She also learns about poisons from the waif, and assists in their preparation, and is repeatedly hit with sticks by a series of mysterious assailants who challenge her as she goes about her duties in the temple, mocking her for her blindness and inability to defend herself effectively. Through it all, she continues to have wolf dreams, seeing events in the riverlands through the eyes of what she calls the Nightwolf. It says, Her nights were bathed in moonlight and filled with the songs of her pack, with the taste of red meat torn off the bone, with the warm familiar smells of her grey cousins. Only during the days was she alone and blind.
0: So, as that quote indicates, as the night wolf, Arya experiences eating human flesh, creating a parallel with her younger brother Bran, who... At the same time, in a cave far to the north, is learning the art of green-seeing while he also travels in his wolf as he sleeps, occasionally partaking of human flesh just as his sister does. Both siblings unknowingly violate a skin-changing taboo, illustrating their need for mentorship in that regard. And while the girl in Bravos knows that the wolf belongs to Arya Stark and still has many thoughts that can be attributed to Arya. She continues to hide these facts and declare that she is no one to her mentors at the House of Black and White.
2: Anaya also has an affinity for cats, which we saw both in King's Landing and in her Cat of the Canals chapter in A Feast for Crows, which continues when she's Blind Beth, the beggar girl. One night at Pinto's, a tavern whose owner is kind to her, she settles in a corner with a familiar cat on her lap to listen to the patron's gossip. Three men off the Lycene galley, heart were discussing the seizure of their ship by the Sea Lord's men. They had been loaded with slaves that they picked up at a place called Hardhome and Beth learns of the defeat of the King Beyond the Wall and the desperate situation there at Hardhome.
0: This is one of a number of times Arya's arc in *Bravos* intersects with or reveals some news from Westeros, often specifically from the Wall or the Night's Watch. From the murder of the man Daron and her meeting with Sam in a feast for crows, to mentions of what Salador San is up to, the fact that it's snowing in the Riverlands, allowing us to place this chapter roughly on the timeline, the news of her aunt Liza's death, and repeated mentions of her brother Jon Snow... We have a number of things combining to strengthen her identity as a girl from Westeros, as Arya, a member
2: of House Stark. But perhaps the key detail of this overheard conversation lies in the fact that as she listens to the sailors, it becomes obvious that she's also seeing them. It says that they spoke very low, but quote... She was no one and she heard most every word. And for a time, it seemed that she could see them too through the slitted yellow eyes of the tomcat purring in her lap.
0: Up until this moment, we've seen Arya experiencing skin changing only through dreams as the night wolf. But immediately following this experience with the cat and the sailors at Pinto's, We see her back at the house of black and white, being quizzed by the kindly man as to what she had learned the night before. This time, the third piece of news she gives is something she's just learned that morning. It says, I know that you're the one who's been hitting me. Her stick flashed out and cracked against his fingers, sending his own stick clattering to the floor.
2: When the man asks... How she could know that, adhering to the rules of the game, which was to give three pieces of news. Aya said, I gave you three, I don't need to give you four. In her thoughts, it continued. Maybe on the morrow she would tell him about the cat that had followed her home last night from Pinto's, the cat that was hiding in the rafters, looking down on them. Or maybe not. If he could have secrets, So could she.
0: So, this is something brand new for Arya, and it seems that in addition to all the new skills she's been learning as an apprentice at the House of Black and White, we can also add self-taught and conscious skin-changing to the list, a skill we've only seen a very few people in the story so far master, and most of those with the assistance of a mentor.
2: Although she keeps this new skill a secret, we should not forget that it appears that Aya is now fully aware that she has this ability, and that she appears to have gained some control over it. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, we can say that while there isn't a recurrence of this in the Mercy chapter, this is something that we definitely have our eyes on for Aya in the Winds of Winter. Expect to see this skill grow in her as it clearly has done so far during her time in Braavos.
0: In her final chapter of A Dance with Dragons, Arya has been given her sight back as a reward for her victory over the kindly man in the stick game. After serving at a meeting of faceless men, Arya is interviewed by one whom she refers to as Plagueface for the plague sores his face displayed. Plagueface asks a number of pointed questions, starting with, who are you?
2: And while Arya stubbornly answers no one, he calls her Liar and names her, quote, Arya of House Stark, who bites her lip and cannot tell a lie. By which he means, of course, that she can't succeed at lying because she has a tell, something that's been noted since her first chapter in A Game of Thrones. Aya bites her lip when she lies. When Plagueface, who seems to know a lot about Arya Stark, accuses her of using the gift of the Many-Faced God for her own purpose and pleasure, she denies it, but bites her lip.
0: Plagueface tells her, "'You lie,' I can see the truth in your eyes. You have the eyes of a wolf and a taste for blood. And then goes on to explain how the gift works. Death holds no sweetness in this house. We are not warriors, nor soldiers, nor swaggering bravos puffed up with pride. We do not kill to serve some lord, to fatten our purses, to stroke our vanity. We never give the gift to please ourselves, nor do we choose the ones we kill. We are but servants." Of the God of Many Faces.
2: Aya continues to think about her list, but insists aloud that she can be humble and can serve. She wants a face, she says, and will pay the price, whatever it is. Plagueface tells her, The price is you. The price is all you have and all you ever hope to have. We took your eyes and gave them back. Next we will take your ears, and you will walk in silence. You will give us your legs and crawl. You will be no one's daughter, no one's wife, no one's mother. Your name will be a lie, and the very face you wear will not be your own.
0: Thinking about all the identities she's assumed and then shed like skin's, Arya is sure she can pay this price, though she is mistaking, perhaps willfully, the meaning of identity. Plagueface isn't just asking her to give up her name, something superficial, but to give up her core identity to stop being Arya Stark inside as well as out, something we've seen Arya simply cannot do. But he offers her a chance to prove herself by giving her a mission.
2: The mission is to give the gift to a man, an insurance salesman whom she has never met. Thinking this would be easy, she agrees and is sent back to be cat of the canals to assess her target. And almost immediately, the reader can sense a pattern to her thoughts as she observes the man.
0: Starting with... He has lived too long. Why should he have so many years when my father had so few? And continuing with things like, He has no courtesy, his face is hard and mean, we see her arrive at the conclusion, He is an evil man, his lips are cruel, his eyes are mean, and he has a villain's beard.
2: Though the kindly man tells her it's not her place to judge him, we can sense that. Aya Stark will have no choice but to judge this man in order to kill him. We think this is highly pertinent to her arc, and while many readers view her as becoming a cold-hearted assassin, we'd say something close to the opposite is happening. Because Aya insists she wants to be one of them, the faceless men are trying very hard to teach her to erase something integral to her nature, her ideals of justice, judgment and mercy. But in reality, she is holding all of those ideas close to her heart and seems to view the training the faceless men are giving her as a means to an end. Rather than an end in itself.
0: Yeah, if we look back over Arya's arc, we can see that every person she's killed has either been defensive or related to vengeance. The single exception is Daron the Singer. Daron was a deserter from the Night's Watch, and it's well established that the punishment for desertion is death. The very first thing we see Lord Eddard Stark do is execute a Night's Watch deserter. In the case of Daron, Arya acted as a senior member of House Stark should. She identified and observed the deserter, judged him to be not only guilty of the crime, but without remorse, and she executed him.
2: That is probably about the most stark thing she could have done, and for that she was punished with the loss of her sight. The kindly man had told her they would have taken her eyes from her anyway to help her to learn to use her other senses, but not for half a year. Blind acolytes were common in the House of Black and White, but few as young as she. The girl was not sorry, though. Daron had been a deserter from the Night's Watch. He had deserved to die.
0: So Arya is also without remorse, certain she had done the right thing. As she had for Arya Stark. For an acolyte of the House of Black and White, it's another story, and the insurance salesman is her chance to redeem herself. But Plagueface warns her, "'When you slew the singer, you took God's powers on yourself. We kill men, but we do not presume to judge them. Do you understand?' And it says Arius' response was to think, no, but say, yes.
2: And so in spite of the warning, she searches for things to dislike about the man, to enable her to judge him deserving of death, all the while dissembling with her mentors. She observes the old man's hands were the worst thing about him, His fingers were long and bony, always moving, scratching at his beard, tugging at an ear, drumming on a table, twitching, twitching, twitching. He has hands like two white spiders. The more she watched his hands, the more she came to hate them. And then she gives the much milder assessment with an almost self-righteous enunciation to her teachers. He moves his hands too much. He must be full of fear. The gift will bring him peace.
0: Eventually, Arya observes the man long enough to come up with a plan to deliver the gift in a way that satisfies all the requirements of her instructors, and is deemed ready and given a face, exactly as she had told Plagueface she wanted. Because she had observed that when his customers brought him money, he would always bite the coins to test their authenticity She decided to use her newfound skills with poison to take advantage of his predictable habit.
2: Yeah, but first, the face. In order to protect her identity, Aya will be given a face to carry out her plan. She is shown to an inner sanctum that she had not yet encountered in the House of Black and White... A place where the faces of all those who came to die there were stored, apparently after they'd been sliced off their late owner's bodies. It says there were a thousand masks hanging on the wall, and that Aya was not afraid. She was the night wolf. No scraps of skin could frighten her.
0: Considering that we'll be discussing how we think Arya might be involved in the ultimate downfall of Ramsay Bolton, this is a pretty interesting statement. If scraps of skin hold no terror for her, perhaps Ramsay won't have the power of fear over her either. Perhaps she might even make use of a scrap of skin in the process. Though that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Let's stick with the insurance salesman for now and get back to Ramsay in the next segment.
2: So the kindly man wants to know if the faces frighten her and tells her it is not too late for you to leave us. Is this truly what you want? And not for the first time we see doubt in Aya's mind but stubborn refusal to give up on the outside. It says Aya bit her lip. She did not know what she wanted. If I leave... Where will I go? Mm. Do it, she blurted out.
0: Earlier we mentioned that we tend to disagree that Arya is moving towards becoming a cold-hearted assassin and it's passages like this that make us wonder. And then there's the way George responded to a question about Arya being an assassin back in 2013. He said, well, she's not an assassin yet. You're assuming she's going to become one. She's an apprentice.
2: The interviewer, Charlie Jane Anders, pointed out that she's already going around killing people and she's learned a lot of the secrets, to which George replied by mentioning child soldiers as seen in real life and in fiction. He said, It's a fascinating construct. We have this picture of children as so sweet and innocent. I think some of the recent history in Africa and some of the longer history have shown us that under the right circumstances, they can become just as dangerous as men, and in some ways, more dangerous. On some level, it's almost a game to them.
0: So, perhaps some interesting insight there into how Arya's arc might develop. Child soldiers are not beyond redemption, and though they learn to treat violence as a game, they can also learn to be members of society again. Arya, with her list, is almost certainly carrying out her vengeance on the people who've hurt her and her family in a way that could be compared to a game, and she's using her sojourn with the Faceless Men to learn many skills that can help her in that game. But none of this means that she's beyond redemption or that she will ultimately lose her identity.
2: But for the moment, Aya's physical identity looks pretty different as she's given the face of an ugly little girl who died a violent death at the hands of her own father. Aya spends a night lost in dreams of faces but it's the faces of her own family and of all the people whose deaths she has caused that she dreams of. She wakes with a memory of stabbing the tickler and goes off to carry out her mission with her list echoing in her head. Sir Gregor, Dunzen, Raff the Sweetling, Sir Illin, Sir Merin, Queen Cersei.
0: We soon learn that her plan for giving the gift to the insurance man is to slip a poisoned coin into the bag of one of his customers, which he will then bite, and sometime later his heart will give out, looking like a completely normal death, with Arya or the ugly little girl, nowhere to be seen. In fact, with this plan, she wouldn't have to approach the man at all. Very interesting thing about this plan is how it informs something that happened back
2: in A Feast for Crows. Yeah, remember Pate, the citadel acolyte who died in his prologue chapter, leaving the way open for the alchemist, highly likely to be none other than Arya's old friend, and Hagar, to take his identity and infiltrate the citadel.
0: Specifically, remember the gold dragon that the alchemist gave Pate, which Pate also bit, simply because he had seen other people doing the same? That was how the poison that killed Pate was delivered. By the time Sam arrives at the Citadel at the end of a Feast for Crows, the false Pate had been in that role for months, likely more than enough time to accomplish whatever it was he had in mind. And so we wonder if it's possible that the mysterious plague phase could be Jackin, returned to Braavos from his mission in Westeros.
2: And if that were so, we'd suggest that the poison coin in both storylines is a hint to the reader. And also that the possible presence of Jaqen in Bravos would add an entirely new dimension to the dynamics between Aya and her mentors at the House of Black and White. Only time will tell on that point, because although we do have a sample chapter to review coming up next, in that chapter she'll be using... Yet another new identity.
0: Yeah, after her successful mission with the insurance man, she was given her own face back, but only temporarily. The kindly man informed her that she would go to Ismbaro to begin an apprenticeship the next day, and for that, she'd need another face, quote, a pretty one this time, I think, as pretty as your own.
2: And that's the last we see of Arya Stark, and it's worth noting that the mention of Isambaro was viewed as very cryptic in 2011. Without the context of the Mercy chapter, gifted to fans nearly three years later, The Apprenticeship could have been just about anything. Fans pointed out that going to Isambaro could mean a person place, or thing. It was impossible to divine from the context, and they did indeed speculate about many things Izimbaro could be.
0: And as we said in our Mercy episode, as far as we know, only one person in the forums that we frequented at the time actually guessed correctly that Izimbaro was a mummer and that her apprenticeship would be learning the artifice of the mummer something the Kindly Man had promised her that she would do in that final A Dance with Dragons chapter. And so, up next, we'll dive back into the story of Mercy and the Mummers for the first time in six years. She woke with a gasp, not knowing who she was or where. The smell of blood was heavy in her nostrils. Or was that her nightmare, lingering? She had dreamed of wolves again, of running through some dark pine forest with a great pack at her heels, hard on the scent of prey.
2: Mercy finds Aryan now apprenticed to a mama's troop, the gate under the assumed identity of a young girl called Mercy who is, quote, a happy soul and a hard worker. Like Sansa as Elaine, the character of Mercy, whose true name is Mercedine, seems to be a bit older and more mature than Aya, though she's still an underdeveloped young girl which will lead to some difficult themes in this chapter.
0: The Gate is under the leadership of Izimbaro, a flamboyant man who calls himself King of the Mummers and who prefers to portray only kings on stage. The troupe is staging a new play by the writer Ferio Farrell called The Bloody Hand, which apparently relates the story of the Iron Throne from Roberts and Joffrey's deaths to Shea and Tywin's murders, with Tyrion cast as the villain. The performance on the evening the chapter opens would be to a packed house due to the presence of an envoy from Westeros, which was also expected to attract a number of keyholders and courtesans.
2: The term keyholder has been mentioned once before in Arya's Cat of the Canals chapter in A Feast for Crows, but was never fully explained until the World of Ice and Fire elaborated that the keyholders of Braavos are the descendants of the original 23 founders of the Iron Bank. Though the keys they hold are now ceremonial, there's still a huge amount of prestige and very likely wealth ...that comes from belonging to one of those families.
0: And in what's likely the second page of the chapter, we see Mercy donning a Mummer's Cloak... ...purple wool lined with red silk, that's noted to have three secret pockets. In those pockets, it says, she hides her treasures. Some coins in one, an iron key in another, a blade in the last. A real blade, not a fruit knife like the one on her hip, but it did not belong to Mercy no more than her other treasures did.
2: This is the first mention of an iron key in Aya's possession, and we know it belongs to Aya because it specifies that the coins, key and blade do not belong to Mercy. The blade we suggested in our Mercy episode is none other than needle, and we'll discuss a few of the reasons we think so shortly. And for what it's worth, if you're interested in our full analysis of the play and a number of theories suggested by this chapter, check out our very first episode, Mercy.
0: So, one thing we'll have our eyes on in The Winds of Winter is whether the key is significant to Arya. In this chapter, the blade will be, so we'd expect the key, introduced early on, to make another appearance as well. Is it related to the Iron Bank or the House of Black and White? How did she come to be in possession of it? Was it given to her or did she steal it? If, as we suggested in the last segment, the faceless man, known to us as Plagueface, turns out to be Jack and Hagar returned from Old Town, could this key be connected to the one he acquired from Pate there? In the mysterious city of Bravos, the potential for an iron key to be something of importance seems somehow limitless. And we'll have to wait and see on this point.
2: As Mercy makes her way to the gate, it says that one route she could take would take her across the Bridge of Eyes with its carved stone faces. This puts us in mind of a bridge she saw when she first arrived in Bravos that had a thousand painted eyes, and we wonder if it could be the same bridge. In any case, the use of the terms carved faces and a thousand eyes certainly reminds us of Bloodraven. And because we strongly suspect that he's been keeping one of his eyes on Arya through a series of cats, we wonder if the Winds of Winter might show us Bloodraven and Bran observing Arya in Braavos from their cave in the far north. And that's not to say it would have to be through the eyes on the bridge. The words could simply be hints at his presence, and they could continue to use cats or some other method for their observation.
0: One thing we don't have to wait for a Winds of Winter release to see, thanks to this chapter, is Arya's progress with her list. As they wait in the wings for the play to start, Mercy and her friend Dana peek out to see the house is filling up. They see a full pit, balconies full of merchants, captains, bravos, and a number of keyholders, And then, in the Sea Lords box, the Westerosi envoy.
2: We can guess that the envoy is Sir Harris Swift, master of coin for Tommen Baratheon. Based on the description of his doublet having a shield embroidered in yellow thread, and on the shield, a proud blue rooster, picked out in lapis lazuli, and the fact that near the end of A Dance with Dragons, then Lord Regent Kevin Lannister told his father-in-law to try borrowing from the Pentoshi to repay the Iron Bank, and that, if that fails, you may well need to go to Braavos to treat with the Iron Bank yourself.
0: And so Sir Harris must have failed with the Pentoshi and now finds himself in Bravos to negotiate with the Iron Bank. What no one from King's Landing knows is that the bank has sent a representative of their own to treat with Stannis Baratheon at the wall, and that even as Sir Harris entertained himself in Bravos with the courtesan known as the Black Pearl, Tycho Nestoris was likely negotiating a very different agreement with Stannis at the Crofter's Village.
2: Yes, even though it's unlikely that Tycho will have had time to notify the bank about the new contract with Stannis, whereby Stannis agreed to assume the entire debt of the Iron Throne in exchange for the bank's financial assistance in his campaign to win the throne, knowing they have an envoy of their own secretly in Westeros will leave them with very little motivation to reach any agreement with Swift. He's simply representing a branch of House Baratheon that the banks seem to have lost their patience with. As the saying goes, the Iron Bank will have its due.
0: And then there are the guards that Sir Harris has with him. It says that Mercy saw four guards, big hard-looking men in ringmail, with heavy Westerosi longswords sheathed at their hips. Their crimson cloaks were bordered in whirls of gold, and golden lions with red garnet eyes clasped each cloak at the shoulder. And then, the face of one of them, led to her inner thought. The gods have given me a gift.
2: So it's not immediately apparent who the guardsman is, but when Mercy slips out to get a closer look, she hears his companion mention Clegane, and so we can guess that it's one of the mountain's men. So, Dunzen or Raff, if we're consulting her list. The play begins, and Mercy is temporarily distracted by her duties, but when she next gets close enough to listen to the guards' conversation, she hears them discussing Bobono, the Mummer's dwarf.
0: The guard who Mercy is interested in seems to be very keen to capture Bobono, who's playing the role of a kinslaying rapist dwarf in the play, none other than the playwright's idea of Tyrion Lannister, and bring his head back to the Queen. It's then, as Bobono says his lines on stage, lines Mercy thinks are better than hers, and apt besides, that Mercy finally approaches the men.
2: As Bobono says, Give me the cup, for I shall drink deep. And if it tastes of gold and lion's blood, so much the better." As I cannot be the hero, let me be the monster, and lessen them in fear in place of love. Mercy, having said a prayer to the god of many faces, says with her sweetest smile, I know your tongue a little, you are lords of Westeros, my friend said. Barrow said to please the lords, if there is anything you want, anything at all.
0: So we mentioned the difficult themes of this chapter at the beginning of the segment, and also that Mercy seems to be older than Arya. So far there have been numerous mentions of rape, as it occurs in the play, and of the dwarf Babono leering at Mercy and making lewd suggestions to her. But here we have Aria, as Mercy, but clearly with Arya's motivations in mind, consciously attempting to seduce one of the guardsmen.
2: Here yeah, on a first read. We really can't be sure what game is afoot, though Aya's obvious excitement and thought that let me be the monster is an apt line might give us a hint. And while one of the men attests to Mercy's youth by showing his disgust at the suggestion, the younger, handsome one is immediately game and introduces himself as Lord Rafford.
0: So, now we know exactly what was causing Arya's excitement. Raff the Sweetling has had a place on her list of names since A Clash of Kings, earned after he killed Lamy Greenhands and committed many more atrocities at the warehouse on the God's Eye. And we know he hasn't been forgotten because in her final chapter of A Dance with Dragons, Arya said her prayer before she set out to give the gift to the insurance man. Sir Gregor, Dunson, Raff the Sweetling, Sir Illyn, Sir Merin. Queen Circe.
2: Viewing her list as a prayer tells us why she saw Raf's unexpected presence at the gate as a gift from the gods, and recalling exactly what he did to Lomi helps us to understand what comes next. Remember that Lomi was suffering a leg wound, and when the Mountain's men captured the group, it was Raf who asked what was wrong with him. Here's the passage. Can you walk? He sounded concerned. No, said Lommy. You got to carry me. Think so. The man lifted his spear casually and drove the point through the boy's soft throat. Lommy never even had time to yield again. He jerked once and that was all. When the man pulled his spear loose, blood sprayed out in a dark fountain. Carry him, he says he muttered, chuckling.
0: And so, as Mercy leads Lord Rafford back to her room, she chatters to him about being a mummer and offers to teach him. "'I could teach you to say a line. I could,' she says, as they run through the streets and up the stairs to her room. Once there, she gets him to say her name, Mercy, which we think is significant. Remember that Lamy had yielded a version of asking for mercy in the Rules of War— which he was not granted. But to Arya, mercy also means death, a death that has been earned or a death that will alleviate suffering. Death, in any case, is coming for Raff.
2: But not before he learns his line. It starts with Mercy putting her hand between his legs and then quickly moves into confusion as Raff begins bleeding, a lot. While Mercy plays the scared and nervous girl, Raph becomes pale and scared himself. He's clearly bleeding out, but he keeps asking the girl for help, for mercy. Here's the passage. Mother have mercy, girl, a healer. Run and find a healer, quick now. There's one on the next canal, but he won't come. You have to go to him. Can't you walk? Walk, his fingers were slick with blood. Are you blind, girl? I'm bleeding like a stuck pig. I can't walk on this. Well, she said, I don't know how you'll get there then.
0: And then as the scene continues, we come to the line Mercy was so keen to teach Raff, and we understand why. You'll need to carry me. See, thought Mercy, you know your line, and so do I. Think so? Asked Arya, sweetly. Raph the sweetling looked up sharply as the long, thin blade came sliding from her sleeve. She slipped it through his throat beneath the chin, twisted and ripped it back out sideways with a single smooth slash. A fine red rain followed, and in his eyes, the light went out.
2: So Arya was able to basically recreate Lommy's murder, her own version of poetic justice. We analysed the scene fully in our Mercy episode and we arrived at the conclusion that while she likely used Mercy's short sharp fruit knife a knife that sounds very similar to the one she was shown to be adept at palming in the Dance with Dragons to cut the artery in Raph's thigh the blade she used in the end to slash Raph's throat was Needle, a long thin blade the very one that she had hidden in her mama's cloak. At the moment the blade slides out of her sleeve, Mercy is referred to as Arya for the first time in the chapter, seems like a potent clue to us, given how closely connected Needle is to Arya's identity. Others have disagreed with that analysis, and of course we won't know for sure until we get the rest of Arya's chapters.
0: What we do know is that Mercy, like Raff, is dead. Arya killed her as well, though she may have also saved the life of the lewd and lascivious dwarf Bobono, whom Raff would have killed just on the off chance that he was Tyrion Lannister in disguise playing Tyrion Lannister on stage. It seems like she left Raff's body in her room to be dealt with after the play, since she had to run back to make the second act. But as she leaves, she thinks about Mercy. Almost like a eulogy. A foolish, giddy girl she'd been, but good-hearted. She would miss her, and she would miss Dana and the Snapper and the rest, even Isimbaro and Bobono. This would make trouble for the Sea Lord and the envoy with the chicken on his chest. She did not doubt.
2: George himself is also weighed in on Mercy's survival. In 2015, He essentially said the same, that Arya can no longer use that identity, obviously. He also revealed, not long after posting the chapter on his website, that he had originally written it over 10 years ago, saying, Originally, it was intended to be the opening Arya chapter after the infamous Five Year Gap, her first appearance in A Dance with Dragons, as initially conceived. Then it was supposed to be part of A Feast for Crows, after I abandoned the five-year gap and split the books. Then it was going to be the concluding Aya chapter in A Dance with Dragons. But it seemed more like an opening chapter than a closing one, so shortly before A Dance with Dragons was published, my editor and I agreed to remove it from Dance and shift it over into Wins.
0: So the feeling that Arya as Mercy is an older, more mature girl than the Arya we saw in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons has some merit in that, as originally planned, Mercy was meant to come after the five-year gap. And speaking of timeline. There's another interesting detail in this chapter that reveals, potentially, a major plot point in The Winds of Winter that you might miss on the first read, given that the timeline of chapters, especially the feast-dance combined chapters, is extremely complex. And we want to shout out to our friend Brynden Beefish Fish for recently bringing this to our attention.
2: In the epilogue to A Dance with Dragons, we learn that the Mountains men, including Rath the Sweetling, whom Jamie has sent to Maidenpool as an escort, to the Riverrun men Jeremy Riger and Desmond Grell, who had opted to take the black, had recently arrived back in King's Landing. Randall Tarley has no use for these men, saying he had to geld one and execute another. ...for crimes committed in Maidenpool. The rest had accompanied Red Ronnet Connington back to the capital. But since Red Ronnet was swiftly taken into custody... ...to ascertain what he knew about the apparent return of his cousin... ...Lord John to Griffin's roost... ...the men now found themselves leaderless again.
0: And so when Harris Swift complained that he needed guards... Kevin told him to hire the mountains men. This explains how Raff came to be in Bravos, and we can assume that this trip takes place well after the epilogue, since Kevin's death would have impacted Sir Harris, his good father, personally, and also since in the epilogue it's noted that Circe's trial by combat would take place in five days. When Mercy is listening in on the guardsmen's conversation, one says to Raff of Sir Harris, If he goes back without the gold, the queen will have his head."
2: The implication of that statement would seem to be that Cersei is back in power and giving orders again. While Kevin had assured the small council that his niece was finished in the epilogue, in the wake of the deaths of both Pycelle and Kevin, we have to assume that she found a way to take control once again following her trial, in which she seems to have been exonerated. We'll leave a full analysis of how we think Cersei's trial will go to a later episode, but the point about the timeline and the minor spoilery detail is a good one.
0: And as for Arya, what comes next for her? Since she must abandon Mercy, we wonder if she'll be able to return to the House of Black and White, or if she'll need to leave, Will she be punished, as she was after killing Teron, or will she be simply cast out? Or has she progressed too far for the Faceless Men to simply let her go willingly, and so will she need to leave in haste? If she leaves Bravos, we don't see how she could cross paths with Tycho Nestoris, Justin Massey, or potentially Jane Poole, all of whom are still in the Crofter's Village around this time.
2: Yeah, we've said that this intersection seems like a possibility simply based on predicted journeys and destinations, although there could also be an aspect of ships passing in the night, as we saw in A Feast for Crows when Brienne saw the Titan's daughter sailing from saltpans with Arya aboard unbeknownst to her. Then there's the theme of the student surpassing the master that we expect to see in the arcs of these three characters who appear to be on parallel heroes journeys. Bran, Sansa and Arya should all reach a point in their development where they've learned as much as they can from their mentors and they progress to the next stage of their journey.
0: And if they're following the basic template of the hero's journey, that next stage would be a homeward-bound return journey. Although many things can still happen during that journey, and there could be many stops along the way, that's exactly what we expect the Winds of Winter to be setting up for not only Arya, but her siblings as well. A return to their starting point where they can put the skills they've learned to good and effective use.
2: And among the skills we can see Arya using once she returns to Westeros is her knowledge of poison. We saw her use poison to kill the insurance man in A Dance with Dragons, and in A Feast for Crows, during one of her lessons with the Waif, she learned about a paste made of basilisk blood. This paste is spiced with basilisk blood. It will give cooked flesh a savoury smell, but if eaten, it produces violent madness, in beasts as well as men. A mouse will attack a lion after a taste of basilisk blood.
0: Arya asked her teacher if the paste would work on dogs, and it appears she was probably remembering the death of Whis at Haranhall in a Clash of Kings. Weis was one of the names Arya gave Jack and Hagar, and he was killed by his own dog, which was seen as singularly odd by those who knew him, since the dog that he'd had since a pup was basically his familiar. But there's a secondary interpretation possible, and that is that the query about dogs is also foreshadowing of something Arya will do in the future.
2: Yeah, imagine Arya back at Winterfell at last using the knowledge she gained on her journey to once again bring poetic justice to someone who has done her family a great wrong. We can be sure that once she learns the truth of Ramsay Bolton's actions, if he's still alive, then he won't be safe from ire, and as we said in our Mercy episode all those years ago, we can't think of a more poetic way for him to meet his end than to go out being devoured by his own dogs.
0: And finally, there's long been speculation in the fandom that Arya might gain enough training in the martial arts that she would be the one to wield the sword Dark Sister if it appears in the main series. A slender longsword originally made for a woman's hand, Dark Sister was once owned by Queen Visenya Targaryen and was wielded by a succession of Targaryens until Bloodraven took it with him to the Wall and perhaps, ultimately, to the cave.
2: That's right, given the importance Valyrian steel swords might have in the effort to defeat the others, we expect more than a few of the mysteriously missing ones to reappear in the narrative, and we can't think of anyone more fitting to wield Dark Sister than Arya Stark, who herself might be called THE Dark Sister.
0: And so, we think there's a lot of movement and action in store for Arya, as well as for her siblings, in the Winds of Winter, as they collectively enter the latter stage of their parallel heroes' journeys. And coming up next, we'll be looking at the third Stark sibling, who seems to be on that path. We'll recap where A Feast for Crows left Sansa before going on to review her Winds of Winter sample chapter and where we see her arc heading, so stick around! And here at the midway point of the episode, it's time for us to say thank you to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks so much to Arrowdo, Aileen, Oxheart, Amber, Hortense of a Shy, Beward, the Queen Beyond the Wall, Blad Spirit, Catherine, Chris K, Christian, Marge of the Mage, Dean, Eliana Targaryen, Lord Sosa, and his faithful canine companion Theodin, Jill, John H., J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of Housaiko, Casey, Lady of the Frostfangs, Lady Silverwing, Infanderas, the Unspeakable Terror, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, Boss, the Sothorian, Sammy, Scotty, Tim, and Lady Dyerliz of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. Sansa Stark went up the mountain, but Elaine Stone is coming down. Elaine was an older woman and bastard brave.
2: It's probably fair to say that Sansa Stark is one of the most talked about and analysed characters in the A Song of Ice and Fire canon. She's also one of two point-of-view characters that haven't been seen or heard from on page since the publication of A Feast for Crows in 2005, the other being Aaron Greyjoy. In 2015 and 2016 respectively, we got sample chapters for both. But there were ten years of radio silence in which fan speculation and analysis about Sansa reached a fever pitch.
0: Sansa's last chapter in A Feast for Crows concerned Sansa, now known as Elaine Stone, Peter Baelish's bastard daughter, preparing herself and her cousin Sweet Robin to leave the Eyrie, making the descent to the gates of the moon as wintry conditions began to set in on the upper reaches of the Giant's Lance. Elaine has become the only person who Sweet Robin trusts, and his condition seems to have worsened in the months since his mother's death.
2: On the descent, they're guided by Maya Stone, an inverse trip to the one we saw in a game of Thrones, with Sansa's mother journeying up the mountain under Maya's guidance. Sansa meets Miranda Royce for the first time, having been forewarned by her father. Be careful. She likes to play the merry fool, but underneath she's shrewder than her father. Guard your tongue around her.
0: Miranda does prove to be a merry girl, recently widowed following a marriage to a much older man, and much liked by Sweet Robin, which is saying quite a lot, actually. But fans couldn't help noticing that her casual recitation of news from around the realm included this tidbit. The Night's Watch has a boy commander, some bastard son of Eddard Stark's. If that was meant as a shrewd bit of fishing, Elaine's quick reply, "Jon Snow? Must have been quite a catch, since there's no real reason for a bastard girl raised by the Faith in Gulltown to be that well informed about Eddard Stark's family or the Night's Watch.
2: It still remains to be seen what Miranda made of that minus slip by Elaine. Of note, her news also included the first mention of a squire called Harry the heir who had recently won his spurs. Elaine is confused as to why Harry, Lady Anya Wainwood's ward, would be anyone's heir, but she doesn't ask as she tries to keep up with Miranda's stream of information.
0: Littlefinger himself is absent, having recently attended the wedding of Lord Lionel Corbray to a gulltown heiress, where he continued to attempt to win or buy to his side as many of the Vale's Lords declarant, that group of six nobles who had banded together after Lysa Aaron's death to declare their opposition to Peter Baelish as Lord Protector, as possible. The allegedly corrupt Lord Benedar Belmore had been the first to reconcile with Lord Baelish and was among the expected guests at the wedding. Miranda herself gave Elaine the news that Sir Simon Templeton and Lady Anya had unexpectedly also attended.
2: Elaine greets this news thinking that the Lord's declarants were down from six to three, it would seem. In other news, Miranda tells Elaine Riverrun has yielded to the Lannisters, but Dragonstone and Storm's End still hold for Stannis. As removed from the events of the rest of the story as Sansa's arc is, remarks like this are crucial to anchoring her arc in the stream of the narrative. As best we can tell, in relation to the events of other locales, as Elaine leaves the Eyrie, Arya is blind in Braavos, Bran has made it to the cave, Jon has recently heard that Stannis took Deepwood Mot from Asher, and Davos has been gone on his mission to retrieve Rickon for several weeks. While in the Riverlands, Jaime prepares to send Edmure and Jane to Casterly Rock. In King's Landing, Cersei has sent Loras Tyrell to take Dragonstone, or die trying, and in Volantis, Tyrion boards a ship bound for Slaver's Bay with Jorah Mormont.
0: When at last the group reached the castle at the gates of the moon, Elaine was surprised by the news that her father, the Lord Protector, had arrived mere hours earlier and was awaiting her arrival. When she found him, Baelish was in the company of three hedge knights that he had taken into his service. Time will tell about handsome Sir Byron and grizzled Sir Morgarth, but the third, Sir Shadrick, is not a stranger to us.
2: Yeah, he's described as a short, wiry man with a wry smile, pointed nose and bristly orange hair. And it seems clear that he's none other than the hedge knight Brienne met in her first A Feast for Crows chapter en route to Duskendale. A wiry fox-faced man with a sharp nose and a shock of orange hair who introduced himself as Sir Shadrick of the Shady Glen he also added some call me the mad mouse as he showed Brienne his shield bearing the sigil of a mouse with red eyes at
0: that point brienne was at the beginning of her quest to locate sansa stark and she tells the people she meets that she's seeking her sister, a a highborn maid and beautiful with blue eyes and auburn hair. After her chance meeting with Sir Shadrach, she gets this reply from him. It may be that you and I share a quest. A little lost sister, is it, with blue eyes and auburn hair? You're not the only hunter in the woods. I seek for Sansa Stark as well.
2: Although Brienne protests that she doesn't know what he is talking about, the fact that she's also indicated that she seeks a fool, the hapless Sir Dontos, more or less gives the game away. And when she asks Sir Shadrick why he is looking for Sansa Stark, he replies, the eunuch has offered a plump bag of gold for this girl you've never heard of and offers to split the reward with her.
0: And so when this man, a self-described hunter, shows up in the Vale in the employ of Peter Baelish, the reader is probably justified in feeling a sense of foreboding. We'll have more on Sir Shadrach shortly, but his introduction to Elaine by her father is the last we see of him in A Feast for Crows. Indicating that he wanted to speak privately with his daughter, Peter dismissed his new swords and settled in to tell Elaine
2: his news. He begins by telling her the times grow ever more interesting and that the Merlin King, the Bravosi galley that had once brought them from King's Landing to the Fingers had returned to Gulltown, most likely from Bravos, and that Oswell Kettleblack had brought news. Typically, Baelish chooses to speak in riddles but what he does say helps us to place this chapter on on the timeline, as well as providing some hints as to his plans. You would not believe half of what is happening in King's Landing, sweetling. Cersei stumbles from one idiocy to the next, helped along by her counsel of the deaf, the dim and the blind. I always anticipated that she would beggar the realm and destroy herself but I never expected she would do it quite so fast. It is quite vexing. I had hoped to have four or five quiet years to plant some seeds and allow some fruits to ripen. But now, it is a good thing that I thrive on chaos. What little peace and order the five kings left us will not long survive the three queens, I fear.
0: We can only guess at what the news Oswell brought might have been, but based on our best timeline estimates, it could have been things like Cersei ignoring the Iron Bank, accepting the rearming of the Faith, arguing with Jaime, alienating the Tyrells, and obsessing over dead dwarfs. In addition, it's possible that Osney Kettleblack, or one of his brothers, had sent a report regarding the situation in King's Landing and Cersei's plans for taking out Marjorie. though as all three are noted to be illiterate, they'd have to enlist a messenger, a plan not without risk.
2: Yeah, but since the Kettleblacks have always been in Littlefinger's employ, in spite of Osmond being deemed especially unreliable since he joined the Kingsguard, we do think there has to be some flow of information from them. Additionally, in light of what Baelish tells Elaine that he's accomplished at the Corbray wedding, the likelihood that the fruits he had hoped to ripen were related to Sansa in Tyrion, that is freeing her from her marriage to Tyrion by achieving Tyrion's demise also seems likely. And it's also worth noting that Baelish's statement about losing those four or five quiet years is almost certainly a reference to the abandoned five-year gap that George had once planned to come between a storm of swords and a feast for crows.
0: Before we go on to discuss the so-called gift Littlefinger claims to have brought from Galtown, let's address the final cryptic line in that passage about Oswell's news. What little peace and order the five kings left us will not long survive the three queens, I fear. Since 2005, people have speculated as to what he was referring to in that statement, given the fact that the passage begins with a reference to the news Oswald got from the Merlin king We think that the fact that the ship had likely just returned from a journey to Braavos and possibly other ports in Essos is significant.
2: Yeah, remember that a feast for crows begins with the word dragons, and then the pate prologue goes on to illuminate the arrival of news about Daenerys and her dragons from all over Essos to Westeros via sailors and ports. Later in Feast... Aya and Sam both hear about Daenerys and the dragons in Braavos specifically. If the Merlin King has recently returned from one of these places where such news is being repeated, we think it's highly likely that these stories have reached the ears of Peter Baelish.
0: And imagine the gleeful reaction of someone who, quote, thrives on chaos upon learning that a Targaryen princess with three dragons seemed to be on her way to Westeros to challenge Cersei for the Iron Throne. This, along with the likely news about Cersei's increasing estrangement from the Tyrells, is what makes us feel there's a good chance that the three queens in question are Cersei, Marjorie, and Daenerys, three women who currently lay claim to the title Queen of the Seven Kingdoms and who Littlefinger expects will very soon be at war with one another along with all their followers.
2: And this is the chaos in which Baelish's plans will thrive. Because if all expectations are correct, then most eyes in Westeros will be trained upon what's happening in the capital and crown lands, leaving Peter Baelish free to carry out whatever plans he has in the works. And that brings us to the final piece of the puzzle in this final Sansa chapter before the Winds of Winter sample. Littlefinger tells Elaine that he's brought her back a gift and that the gift is a marriage contract.
0: Elaine is dismayed since Sansa Stark is still married to Tyrion Lannister but Baelish discards that concern, saying... The marriage must needs wait until Cersei is done and Sansa safely widowed, but that this is only a betrothal, which Lady Wainwood insists will require the approval of the boy. Now Elaine is thoroughly confused because Lady Anya Wainwood is one of the leading nobles in the Vale and was lately one of the Lord's declarant. Why would she consent to betroth one of her sons to a bastard?
2: Why indeed, Littlefinger launches into an explanation of the betrothal. The dowry is substantial and Baelish himself has been buying up House Wainwood's debts. There's an element of blackmail here, but just possibly also an element of Anya Wainwood having a strong suspicion as to the identity of the Lord Protector's daughter. And now we come back to the young squire that Miranda Royce had mentioned on their journey down the mountain. If Sansa was confused then, she's even more so now as Littlefinger tells her that Harold Harding, Harry the heir, is her new betrothed.
0: And now she asks the question she didn't ask Miranda. Why would he be Lady Wainwood's heir? But of course he isn't her heir at all, merely a cousin that she's had the wardship of. And then we get a lesson in the genealogy of House Aaron. John Aaron had one younger brother and one sister. His brother fathered a son, Elbert, before he died young. Elbert was John Aaron's heir for many years, until he had the misfortune to accompany Brandon Stark to the Red Keep after Prince Rhaegar disappeared with Lyanna Stark. The Mad King had him executed, effectively ending that branch of the Arryn
2: tree. John Arryn's sister married a Wainwood and had nine children, eight girls and a boy, before she herself died. The son died young, along with two of his sisters. The eldest of the remaining six girls married Sir Dennis Arryn, a distant cousin of the Arryns of the Erie. Dennis became John Arryn's heir after Elbert was killed. But unfortunately, Dennis died at the Battle of the Bells, leaving no children.
0: So if you're keeping track, we have five sisters left. Of the remaining sisters, one became a scepter, another went to the silent sisters, and a third married a minor lord but had no children. The fourth was carried off by burned men in the mountains of the moon as she made her way to the Riverlands for a marriage, while the youngest married a landed knight named Harding and gave birth to a son named Harold before herself dying. Harry the heir, as it turns out, is sickly little sweet Robin's heir, and Littlefinger's long game, it would seem, is to reveal Sansa's identity, marry her to the soon-to-be defender of the Vale, and leverage the army of the Vale to take back Winterfell. Here's the passage.
2: When Robert dies, Harry the heir becomes Lord Harold, defender of the Vale and Lord of the Eyrie. John Arryn's bannerman will never love me, nor our silly, shaking Robert but they will love their young falcon. And when they come together for his wedding, and you come out with your long auburn hair, clad in a maiden's cloak of white and grey, with a direwolf emblazoned on the back, why, every knight in the vale will pledge his sword to win you back your birthright. So those are your gifts from me, my sweet Sansa, Harry, the Eerie, and Winterfell.
0: And so, with those words, and a creepy play by Baelish at another kiss from his daughter, Sansa's arc hit a ten-year pause, while fans debated Sweet Robin and Tyrion's fates, exactly how much Anya Wainwood knew and what Littlefinger's plans for Harry himself were. But before we fast forward to 2015 and the Elaine One sample chapter, there are a couple of specific things fans discussed in those years that we want to address.
2: So first is the minor detail of the Wainwood daughter who was carried off by the burned men. Keen-eyed readers noted that... One of the clansmen Tyrion befriends in the mountains of the moon and brings to King's Landing with him was one Timit, son of Timit of the Burned Men. A youth of probably a few years older than Harold Harding, Timit is a fearsome character whose reputation had already gained him the status of Red Hand, some kind of war chief of his tribe.
0: The burned men seem to be an offshoot of another clan that formed in the years after the Dance of the Dragons. Their coming-of-age ceremony for warriors involves burning off a part of their body to prove their bravery. This would usually be a finger or a nipple, but the more important the body part, the greater their prestige. Young Timmit evidently burned out his left eye, thus gaining the huge prestige of being a red hand.
2: And the origin of the... Burned men was possibly revealed in fire and blood when Gildane stated that they worshipped a so-called fire witch and their coming of age ritual stemmed from the days in which their young men would be sent to her with gifts, risking the flames of her dragon to prove their bravery. This witch, Gildane suggested, was none other than the girl Nettles and her dragon Sheepstealer, who had disappeared from Maidenpool in the waning days of the Targaryen Civil War, only to be last seen during the reign of Aegon III, flying into the depths of the Mountains of the Moon.
0: So, Timmet, the theory goes, is of the right age to possibly be the son of the Wainwood daughter, who was abducted by burned men en route to her marriage in the Riverlands. He fought for Tyrion at the Green Fork and in the Kingswood, and made quite a splash in King's Landing. He was also notably present when Tyrion rescued Sansa Stark from Joffrey in the training yard soon after his arrival in the city, and he would, many suggest, recognize Elaine as Sansa and possibly know exactly what her value was.
2: Yes, so the idea is that Timmit, if his mother married his father, possibly the true heir of House Arryn, might unify the clansmen. And remembering that Tyrion had promised his erstwhile allies from the clans, I will give you the Vale of Arryn, and ignited their desire for conquest. It's conceivable that some of these ferocious fighters might make a play to eliminate the ruling class of the Vale. And what better time to do that than when they're all gathered together for a tourney, as we'll see happening in the Elaine sample chapter.
0: It's not at all clear whether or how Timmet's possible parentage could become relevant, and his knowledge of Sansa's identity seems a more likely plot point, but it's an interesting theory based on one of those twisted genealogies that George likes to present us with. And that brings us to the final bit of fan speculation we want to discuss in this segment.
2: Yeah, in the Storm of Swords, in an effort to divert Rob from naming Jon Snow as his heir, Catelyn tells him, Your father's father had no siblings, but his father had a sister who married a younger son of Lord Raymar Royce of the Junior Branch. They had three daughters, all of whom married Vale Lordlings, A Wainwood and a Corbray for certain. The youngest, it might have been a Templeton.
0: In the world of Ice and Fire, we learned that this great-aunt of Ned was called Jocelyn, and that she married Benedict Royce. Their daughters married into House Wainwood, Corbray and Templeton, notably houses that have been brought around, almost certainly by financial pressure, to supporting Peter Baelish. The daughters would have been Lord Rickard's first cousins, and their children, Wainwoods, Corbrays and Templetons, would be Ned's second cousins, and going by generational math, these second cousins could possibly be the current heads of those houses.
2: So the search for the Stark cousins in the Vale might lead us to the very people who are being gathered around Sansa as allies of Littlefinger as the Winds of Winter begins. Anya Wainwood and her sons, Simon Templeton, and Lionel and Lynn Corbury, And let's not forget Harold Harding, whose Wainwood mother might very well have been the daughter of one of Lord Rickard's cousins.
0: Where does this all lead? Could any of these individuals actually hope to press a claim to Winterfell? Could Anya Wainwood's agreement to marry Harry to Elaine be based upon some secret knowledge about both of their ancestry? Does Baelish know this background information? Does this possible close relationship explain why these houses were the leaders of the effort to convince Lysa Aaron to enter the War of the Five Kings on the side of her sister's family? Does it offer a hint to why Ned was fostered in the Vale? Or is it all truly just background information in the tangled web of Westerosi history that George likes to weave?
2: Only time will give us answers to most of these questions, or not. But the presence of myriad small details like this is just one reason why so many of us appreciate the complexity of George R.R. R. Martin's saga. And now, let's leave discussions of genealogy and its importance to the plot and turn our eyes to the Elaine 1 sample chapter from The Winds of Winter, first gifted to fans on George's website back in 2015, but originally completed in 2008, and like the Mercy chapter and the As Yet Unseen brand chapter, once intended to be part of A Dance With Dragons. As with most of these cuts that we were aware of, the ultimate placement is the one that feels right. Elaine 2 of A Feast for Crows felt like an ending, and the sample chapter very much feels like a new beginning, as we see Elaine living a whole new life at the gates of the moon. And so, up next, we'll talk about what's happening there, and make some suggestions about what could happen next for Sansa Stark. She
0: was reading her little lord a tale of the winged knight, when Maia Stone came knocking on the door of his bedchamber, clad in boots and riding leathers, and smelling strongly of the stable.
2: Our first glimpse of Sansa in a decade began with her reading stories to her cousin Robert Aaron, While she seems older and more poised than the girl we knew from A Feast for Crows, the sad and sickly Lord of the Eerie doesn't seem to have changed much, except that his attachment for the girl he now knows as Elaine has grown to the point where he declares his love for her and his wish to marry her and keep her with him always. He's aware of Elaine's betrothal to his cousin Harry Harding and disapproves, not only because of his own feelings, but because he dislikes Harry. I hate that Harry. He calls me cousin, but he's just waiting for me to die so he can take the eerie. He thinks I don't know, but I do
0: Alayne knows, though, that she cannot be wed to anyone as long as Tyrion Lannister lives. She thinks to herself, Queen Cersei had collected the head of a dozen dwarfs, Peter claimed, which, as we've said, was likely part of the news Oswell had brought back in A Feast for Crows. In this chapter, Maya Stone brings news of Lady Anya Waynewood's eminent arrival with her sons and ward, Harry himself, which doesn't improve Sweet Robin's mood though it does give Elaine an excuse to go in search of her father. Her first stop, it says, is the Lord Protector's solar.
2: It was here earlier in the morning that Peter had received Oswell Kettleblack back yet again, quote, on a lathered horse with news from Gulltown. The condition of Oswell's horse indicates that he had ridden in some haste, so the expectation is that the news he brought must be momentous. Going by the hints we outlined in the last segment, we can make an educated guess that the news Oswell brought was of Cersei's arrest.
0: Yes, since it's noted that autumn was lingering in the valleys, we can place this chapter prior to Kevin's A Dance with Dragons epilogue, where we saw the White Raven announcing the start of winter arrive from the Citadel. Since Cersei spends about a month in jail prior to her walk of shame, and she was still very much in charge in King's Landing in the previous Elaine chapter, we think the momentous news here would have to be about the beginning of the Queen's downfall. Combine that with the fact that Old Oswell's youngest son was incarcerated prior to Cersei, in fact it was his testimony gained by the Faith under torture that led to her arrest, and we can further guess that Oswell's just gotten some pretty bad news about Osney.
2: Though Elaine doesn't find her father in his solar, she does see a, quote, list of competitors. And we get some exposition about a tourney that's bringing much of the nobility of the Vale to the gates of the moon. It's apparently a contest to select the best warriors of the Vale to form a Brotherhood of Winged Knights, to act as a personal guard to the Lord of the Eyrie, much like the one Queen Alyssa Valerian had suggested to fill the empty spots of her son's King's Guard 150 years previously.
0: And this contest, it turns out, was Elaine's idea. Not a huge surprise, since we know how much Sansa Stark favours stories and songs, and we can be certain there were a few songs written about the famed War for the White Cloaks, as Jaehaerys' tourney was called. The Vale tourney would involve 64 competitors vying for eight spots. Bayliss shrewdly predicted that all those selected to participate would come, telling Elaine, They're young, eager, hungry for adventure and renown. Lysa would not let them go to war, and this is the next best thing, a chance to serve their lord and prove their prowess. They will come. Even Harry the Heir.
2: One thing of note that separates this brotherhood from the King's Guard is that the eight knights selected would be asked to commit three years of service rather than life. This would not only open up the field to talented knights and members of the nobility who had no wish to abandon their futures but could potentially bring a major benefit to the Lord Protector's plans.
0: And that is, if Harold Harding should be selected, in spite of Littlefinger saying he's nowise skilled enough, those three years in which he was serving Sweet Robin could be intended to give Littlefinger time to achieve his goal of freeing Sansa from Tyrion Lannister, while keeping Harry close by so that Elaine could win him over. For that reason, we view the tourney, among other things, as a way Baelish could hope to win back some of that time he had bemoaned the loss of when Elaine arrived at the Gates of the Moon back in A Feast for Crows.
2: Continuing her search for her father, Elaine comes across Lord Nestor Royce, showing Lord Waxley the tapestries he had recently been given as a gift by the Lord Protector. In the past, we suggested that there could have been a sword concealed in those rolled-up tapestries, Widow's Whale perhaps, but since George has stated that Widow's Wail remains in King's Landing, we turned our eyes to other mysteriously missing Valyrian steel swords, of which there are many, and came up with a different option. We had to cut the discussion from this episode due to length, but in brief, we wonder about Lamentation, the ancestral sword of House Royce of Runestone, missing since the Dance of the Dragons, which could prove very useful in the effort to get Bronze Yeown on side. Look for the essay format to be posted on our website in the upcoming days, and if you like theories, patrons can look forward to the audio outtake in their feeds soon as well. And so, Let's move on now, as Sansa did in her search for Littlefinger. She didn't find him in the yard, though she did encounter Miranda Royce seeking to be rescued from the attentions of two knights newly arrived from Gulltown.
0: Elaine succeeds in jarring Miranda away from Sir Ossifer Lips and Sir Uther Shet, and as they seek Littlefinger, their talk turns to the soon-to-be-arriving Lady Wainwood and her sons, And that's when Miranda says something truly remarkable about the Wainwoods, something that's very easy to miss on the first read. The First Lady Wainwood must have been a mare, I think. How else to explain why all the Wainwood men are horse-faced?
2: Yeah, let's rewind to the end of the last segment, where we talked about the Stark cousins in the Vale and the distinct possibility that one of Lord Edwire's nieces had married into House Wainwood, making the present Waynewoods close Stark relations. In a story where so many of the Houses have what could be called distinctive looks, from full-lipped and golden-haired Lannisters to chinless Freys and wild black-haired Baratheons, the signature look of House Stark would have to be their long faces, described more than once as horse-like.
0: And so we have to ask... Is there a subtle hint to the Wainwood ancestry in that statement? Would a past Lady Wainwood who was born a Stark explain why, quote, all the Wainwood men are horse-faced? Combined with other things we mentioned in the last section, we think there's a good chance that this is a hint of sorts. And speaking of possible Stark relations in the Vale, the next person Elaine and Miranda see is Sir Lynn Corbray, training in the yard.
2: Sir Lynn notices them and stops to talk. Back in a feast for crows, Elaine had thought how he was quote more dangerous than all six of the Lord's Declarant put together. A dark and slender man who had courted Liza Aaron after Lord John's death, he had been his brother Lionel's heir until the recent wedding, brokered by Baelish, which had already proved fertile.
0: This exchange is actually one of the few things to definitively indicate passage of time since Elaine II in A Feast for Crows. Enough time for Lionel Corbray's new wife to announce a pregnancy, yet not enough time to catch up with the Dance with Dragons epilogue. It means that several weeks at least have passed since Littlefinger returned from the wedding as Elaine came down from the Eyrie. Elaine's thinking about Sir Lynn's fondness for gold and seems to be enjoying needling him about his brother's child to be when she turns around and bumps into Sir Shadrick.
2: Yeah, remember Sir Shadrick, the mad mouse, the hedge knight Peter hired in a Feast for Crows, who was first seen by Brienne and is admittedly seeking Sansa Stark for the reward she would bring. His exact words to Brienne were, the eunuch has offered a plump bag of gold for this girl you've never heard of.
0: By way of conversation, Miranda and Elaine ask the small man if he'll be entering the lists or the melee. Referring to his sigil, he says, a mouse with wings would be a silly sight. The melee, he says, is the best a poor hedge knight can hope for, unless he stumbles on a bag of dragons.
2: As was the case with the comment about the Wainwoods' long faces, this is a bit of wordplay that's easy to miss, especially if you haven't brushed up on A Feast for Crows and Sir Shadrick recently. But if you have, you might recall that line where he mentioned that Sansa Stark was worth a plump bag of gold. And then you might think twice about the comment about stumbling on a bag of dragons, considering that he and Sansa, whom he equates with a large bag of gold, literally stumbled on each other.
0: oh, in this case, what the reader is left to ponder is if this wordplay is significant due to irony, because Sir Shadrach is looking for something that's right under his nose and he doesn't see it, or if it's significant because there's a veiled threat hidden behind his chest. And if you're contemplating what lies beneath the surface – We'll also point out that in the same passage, Sir Lynn Corbray is noted to be eternally short of, and probably willing to do most anything for a plump bag of gold.
2: Hmm. And okay, leaving both Sir Shadrick and Sir Lynn for now, Miranda and Elaine depart the yard upon hearing horns sounding the arrival of the Wainwood party. As they race for the gate, laughing and running, Elaine has a sweet memory of running through Winterfell with Jane Poole and Arya on their heels. For the reader, there's a bittersweet part in the fact that at that moment, there's a very good chance Jane was being wed to Ramsay Bolton at Winterfell in the guise of Arya. Knowing that Jane has since escaped Ramsay's grasp, We have to wonder if she and Sansa will ever be reunited and what that reunion would look like.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a question we'd like to see answered, not to mention the question of what happens if Sansa hears the news that Arya has been wed to Ramsay Bolton. Since Peter Baelish was responsible for Jane Poole's training in a brothel in King's Landing and he very likely hopes to one day use his knowledge that Ramsay Bolton's wife is a fraud to the benefit of his own plans, we also wonder what he expected Sansa to make of that information. It's possible that, as in so many other ways, he's critically underestimating Sansa and that knowledge of Jane's fate plays some role in her ultimate disillusionment with her mentor, whether the two girls meet again or not.
2: In this chapter, though, it's a first meeting. Sansa and Miranda arrive at the gate to meet the Waynewood party, which goes fairly well until it comes to the introduction of Harry to Elaine. Elaine notices that he stares at her and doesn't seem pleased to see her, but he has little to say until she offers to show him to his chamber. His reply, combined with things we've already heard about him fathering two bastards with two young women, seems specifically designed to make us loathe him. Why should it please me to be escorted anywhere by Littlefinger's bastard?
0: And so, the romantic Elaine goes from being pleasantly excited for the meeting, thinking of him as my Harry, to thinking, may your horse stumble, Harry the heir, so you fall on your stupid head in your first tilt, as she rapidly made her excuses and fled the scene, still in search of her father.
2: Littlefinger, it turns out, was inspecting the granary with Lords Grafton and Belmore, They're having a discussion about grain prices and if you've listened to our Littlefinger episodes you might remember that this is not an unfamiliar subject for him. In A Storm of Swords, as Master of Coin Tyrion begins to untangle Littlefinger's financial web. One thing he noted was he bought grain when it was plentiful and sold bread when it was scarce. This, among many other things he was involved in led to a positive result. The gold dragons bred and multiplied, and Littlefinger lent them out and brought them home with hatchlings.
0: But remember back in A Game of Thrones when Ned was hand and he discovered, from none other than Littlefinger himself, the extent of the crown's debts? Here's the passage. The crown is more than six million gold pieces in debt, Lord Stark, The Lannisters are the biggest part of it, but we have also borrowed from Lord Tyrell, the Iron Bank of Braavos, and several Tyroshi trading cartels. Of late, I've had to turn to the Faith. The High Septon haggles worse than a Dornish fishmonger.
2: In our Littlefinger episode, we noted that there is an appearance of financial health because of all those gold dragons breeding and multiplying, But we also noted that Baelish was using borrowed money to make more money and apparently also making loans of his own. With income from loans and capital investments, Littlefinger created an illusion of prosperity which might have been described in modern terms as a bubble based upon his manipulation of the market had the wartime economy not taken over.
0: But, as we said, we'd be foolish indeed to think the Master Manipulator didn't have a plan in place to take advantage of the wartime economy. And this scene gives us a window to that plan. As the three men discuss grain prices and when to sell their stores, Baelish advises Grafton and Belmore, Wait. If need be, buy the food yourself and keep it stored. Winter is coming. Prices must go higher.
2: When Lord Grafton points out that Bronzion Royce and others will be turning their grain into silver, the Lord Protector replies, Let us hope so. When their granaries are empty, they will need every scrap of that silver to buy sustenance from us. So obviously Peter Baelish is playing an old game here and has indeed made plans to benefit from the wartime economy and knowing him, this is likely only the tip of the iceberg.
0: When Sansa is alone with Baelish, she describes how horrible Harry was to her. Littlefinger soothes her and reminds her that, quote, bringing Harry here was the first step in our plan, but now we need to keep him, and only you can do that. So there's a pretty strong indication that there is a distinct plan around this tourney and that it's much more than it appears. As we mentioned earlier, If Harry were to win a place in Sweet Robin's Guard, he'd be kept under the Lord Protector's eye for the next three years.
2: Yeah, and while Littlefinger might have indicated that he doesn't consider Harry talented enough at jousting to win, he was likely being disingenuous for his audience. In reality, we'd point to someone like Jorah Mormont winning a tourney against the odds as an example. As Barristan Selmy, speaking as Aston Whitebeard, said in A Storm of Swords, "'A change in the wind may bring the gift of victory, "'or a lady's favour knotted round an arm.'"
0: So Littlefinger instructs Elaine to charm him, entrance him, bewitch him. But he also advises that she not give the young man her favour. "'Withhold it,' he says, "'give it to someone else.' Basically, he tells her to tease him, lest she seem too eager. Are we surprised that this is Peter Baelish's advice? Hardly. It's about as cringy as we'd expect. And that's essentially the last we see of Littlefinger in this chapter.
2: The chapter ends with a description of the feast. Vintage Martinian food porn of 64 dishes, including a 12-foot lemon cake in the shape of the giant's lance. When the dancing begins, Elaine is much in demand as a partner, dancing with no fewer than 14 of the young knights there for the tourney, including, at last, Harold Harding.
0: Mindful of her father's words, Elaine is careful to initiate a conversation that doesn't seem too eager. She asks about his bastards, which is a topic sure to put him off balance. Harry, second in cringe only to Peter Baelish, spends a few moments singing the praises of his current mistress, a gulltown heiress named Saffron.
2: Amused by the name, Elaine japes about the choices for her child, cinnamon, cloves, and appears to impress Harry with her wit. And when she seems to have won him over, she makes an ultimatum of sorts. Should we ever wed, you'll have to send Saffron back to her father. I'll be all the spice you'll want. And then the chapter ends with Harry asking for her favour and Elaine declining, as instructed. So,
0: obviously, Sansa has come a long way in the few months since she became Elaine. This chapter makes it clear in a myriad of ways that under Littlefinger's tutelage she's becoming a master manipulator, though she's not attained his level of devious cunning, nor do we necessarily think that this will be in her character.
2: As a player, though, we think it becomes more obvious with every page that she will be a force to be reckoned with, and we shouldn't perhaps forget some of her other influences from her real father and Septa Mordain to Cersei and Olenna Tyrell. Sansa hasn't forgotten Scepter Mordain's lesson about courtesy. In fact, in this chapter, when she meets Harry and he insults her, she thinks a lady's armour is her courtesy. But Cersei taught her another lesson back in King's Landing. Tears are not a woman's only weapon. You've got another one between your legs and you'd best learn to use it.
0: Yeah, and this is surprisingly, or not, in sync with how Littlefinger is instructing her. Not that we expect her to follow along with this advice. Elena Tyrell's advice was a bit less explicit, but it was certainly more than a little provocative given the setting. She said, all these kings would do a deal better if they would put down their swords and listen to their mothers.
2: So for Sansa, the lessons seem to be suggesting women can, or even should, be in control. Given that we now know Littlefinger's plan is to set her up as the Lady of the Vale and the reinstated Lady of Winterfell, it's all moving Elaine-Sansa in one direction very swiftly. Unfortunately, there are a couple of obstacles to this goal, and one of them happens to be watching elaine Dance with Harry.
0: Yeah, it says, as they waited for the music to resume, Elaine glanced at the dais where Lord Robert sat, staring at them. Please, she prayed, don't let him start to twitch and shake. Not here, not now. Major Coleman would have made certain that he drank a strong dose of sweet milk before the feast, but even so.
2: So the problem with sweet milk lies in its principal ingredient, sweet sleep. We mentioned that in A Feast for Crows, Arya learns about poisons from the waif at the House of Black and White. Sweet sleep, she is told, is, quote, the gentlest of poisons. A few grains will slow a pounding heart and stop a hand from shaking and make a man feel calm and strong a pinch will grant a night of deep and dreamless sleep. Three pinches will produce that sleep that does not end. The taste is very sweet, so it is best used in cakes and pies and honeyed wines.
0: We learn of these properties of sweet sleep just a few chapters after Peter Baelish instructs Maester Coleman on how to make sweet robin presentable for the visit of the Lord's declarant. Perhaps a pinch of sweet sleep in his milk. Have you tried that? Just a pinch, to calm him and stop his wretched shaking.
2: But Maester Coleman is clearly uncomfortable with the suggestion. His reply, it says, goes like this. A pinch. The apple in the maester's throat moved up and down as he swallowed. One small pinch. perhaps. Perhaps. Not too much, and not too often, yes. I might try.
0: And so begins a programme of giving Sweet Robin sweet milk whenever there is a necessity of keeping him calm. In the Lane 2 of A Feast for Crows it says, They dare not let the full extent of Robert's frailty and cowardice become too widely known. The problem is that once they leave the safety of the Eyrie to live around other people, there are increasingly more occasions where it becomes necessary to hide his condition, starting with the day of their descent when Sansa requests it to keep him calm as they make the perilous trip down the mountain. Coleman tells her that he had a cup three days ago, adding... "'It was too soon, my lady. You do not understand. "'As I have told the Lord Protector, "'a pinch of sweet sleep will prevent the shaking, "'but it does not leave the flesh, and in
2: time.' "'When Elaine insisted that they must keep him calm at all costs, "'and outright drugging him with something like milk of the poppy "'simply won't do, Coleman assents, begrudgingly, on one condition. "'I try, my lady.' Yet his fits grow ever more violent, and his blood is so thin I dare not leech him any more. Sweet sleep! Are you certain he was not bleeding from the nose?
0: Elaine declared he was not, and then also insisted that once they reached the gates of the moon, Robert would need another dose to keep him calm for the welcoming feast. And so we know that by the time of the feast in the winds of winter, In what's likely to have been no more than a couple of months, Sweet Robin has been given at least five doses of sweet sleep. With Coleman's repeated warnings that over time the treatment will build up in his flesh, it seems like there's a real risk that the child is being slowly poisoned to death. And while we're pretty certain this isn't lost on Littlefinger, who probably even intends the eventual outcome of Robert's death, The biggest question readers probably have about this is whether Sansa is aware. As fans, we all want Sansa to be special, good and beautiful and accomplished, like a princess from a song. But how many times does George tell us that life is not a song? Why are we as fans collectively okay with Arya being a dark and vengeful assassin, but shy away from darkness and Sansa? We think George wants us to ask these questions, and we want to remind you of his words regarding the Winds of Winter from 2016. This is not going to be the happy feel-good that people may be hoping for. Some of the characters are in very dark places. In any story, the classic structure is things get worse before they get better. So things are getting worse for a lot of people.
2: So we should almost certainly expect a greater darkness to enter Sansa's arc, and with the poisoning of her cousin, whose eventual deaths she seems to have accepted given the plotting surrounding Harold Harding, we should probably not be surprised if she turns out to be complicit, at least on the level of having knowledge of the situation that she fails to act upon. And so in The Winds of Winter, we think It will be necessary to realise that Lady Lemoncakes, if she's to fulfil her destiny as a political player, just might have to get her hands dirty.
0: As for what else might be happening with Sansa as the Winds of Winter progresses, we think that the tourney in the Vale is highly unlikely to progress without some dramatic event interrupting it. George has shown us a number of tourneys on page, and so let's consider the outcome of a handful of the most significant ones.
2: Here we picked the four that loom largest in the plot, and here's a summary of what happened at each. The tourney at Ashford ended with the Trial of Seven and the death of the Crown Prince Baylor Breakspeare. The White War's wedding tourney was planned to be the beginning of the Second Blackfyre Rebellion and ended when the main conspirators were killed or taken into custody. The tourney of Harrenhal ended with the scandal of Prince Rhaegar crowning Lyanna Stark as Queen of Love and Beauty and the hands tourney in King's Landing was marred by Robert and Cersei publicly fighting and then the mountain's brutal slaying of Sir Hugh of the Vale and his own horse.
0: So we think there's a pretty good chance that this Vale tourney will involve something momentous, but whether that's an attack by the Mountain Clans, an attempt by Sir Shadrick to kidnap Elaine, possibly including a betrayal by Sir Lynn Corbray, the death of young Robert Aaron, or something completely unforeseen by the fandom... We don't think it will be an event that sends Elaine Sansa back into a state of captivity, in spite of the pattern of captivity release that we've seen so far in her arc.
2: Right, we think and really hope that she's progressed far enough along the arc from pawn to player that the outcome for her, dark as it may be, will be something different from the standard damsel in distress or princess in the tower tropes we've seen so far. Only time will tell though and there's a lot of story to tell yet with two books to go and we fully expect George to surprise us in many ways.
0: One thing we don't necessarily expect to be a surprise is the direction Sansa's arc will be taking her in The Winds of Winter Remember Littlefinger's words to Sansa back in A Feast for Crows regarding her betrothal to Harold Harding and the reveal of her true identity. When you come out with your long auburn hair, clad in a maiden's cloak of white and grey, with a direwolf emblazoned on the back, why every knight in the Vale will pledge his sword to win you back your birthright.
2: Since it's stated explicitly that bringing Sansa back to Winterfell is the endgame, and because we see the same pattern playing out in other Stark POVs, we think this is likely part of a series of parallels that can be identified between Sansa, Arya and Bran, as they all negotiate a hero's journey of sorts. As we've said, in The Winds of Winter, we think their arcs previously leading them out and away through a series of mentors will turn homeward.
0: In keeping with this is the fact that the army of the Vale has been largely untouched by the War of the Five Kings, as has been mentioned many times, as has the frustration of many of the lords who make up the so-called Lord's Declarant with Lysa's refusal to allow them to enter the war on Robb's side. Having this Chekhov's army on her side will surely be a huge asset as Sansa returns to her home.
2: Yeah, and while we can't extend the parallel between Sansa, Arya and Bran to that detail, there is one more Stark sibling who might be in a similar situation, as we've discussed in the past. And coming up next, we'll give you our thoughts on what might be happening with Rickon and Davos early in the Winds of Winter.
0: An admiral without ships? hand without fingers, in service to a king without a throne. Is this a knight who comes before us, or the answer to a child's riddle?
2: In A Dance with Dragons, we saw Davos Seaworth, now Stannis's hand, on a secret mission to forge an alliance with Lord Wyman Manderly. To say it didn't appear to go well is an understatement since Lord Wyman had Davos imprisoned to appease his fray visitors and later faked his execution in order to convince the Lannisters to return his surviving son Wylus, captured at the Ruby Ford by Gregor Clegane and held at Hall since before the Red Wedding.
0: But as the phrase prepared to depart White Harbor to head for Winterfell, Wyman had Davos released and held a secret meeting with him and Robert Glover. In one of the most unforgettable scenes of A Dance with Dragons, Lord Wyman explained the motives for his deception and his continuing loyalty to House Stark, concluding, "'The North remembers, Lord Davos. The North remembers, and the Mummer's farce is almost done. My son is home.'"
2: Davos was at first confused by this apparent show of loyalty for what he terms a dead king, referring to Rob. But Lord Wyman is quick to produce Wex Pike, formerly Theon Greyjoy's squire. Lord Wyman and Robert Glover, between them, told the tale of House Bolton's treachery, which closely paralleled that of House Frey. Now, with Wireless safe home, Wyman would be setting out for Winterfell, where he had been summoned to witness the wedding of Stark to Ramsay Snow, and to pledge his loyalty to the new Warden of the North.
0: And then, as he explained his intentions to travel north, and as Davos waited for the offer he had plainly been brought there to hear, Lord Wyman told him this, "'I have been building warships for more than a year.' Some you saw, but there are as many more hidden up the White Knife. Even with the losses I have suffered, I still command more heavy horse than any other lord north of the Neck. My walls are strong, and my vaults are full of silver. Old Castle and Widow's Watch will take their lead from me. My bannermen include a dozen petty lords and a hundred landed knights. I can deliver King Stannis the allegiance of all the lands east of the White Knife. From widow's watch and Ramsgate to the sheep's head hills and the headwaters of the broken branch, all
2: this I pledge to do if you will meet my price. This passage very plainly establishes House Mandalay as the actual power in the north, with a large army, warships and dozens of bannermen. House Bolton has the questionable advantage of being supported by the Iron Throne, but Manderly seems to be saying he has the numbers and the financial resources to prevail over that. Davos cautiously offers to bring terms to Stannis, but Wyman waves this away. It's a smuggler he wants.
0: Yeah, Robert Glover reveals that Wex... Hiding in the Winterfell Godswood had witnessed the reappearance of Bran, Rickon, Hodor, Asha, Mira, and Jojen with their wolves and their subsequent departure from Winterfell. Though mute, he was also able to relay the fact that the group had split into two and that he had followed the group that was comprised of a boy, a woman, and a wolf.
2: Lord Wyman is to the point. Bruce Bolton has Lord Eddard's daughter. To thwart him, White Harbour must have Ned's son and the direwolf. The wolf will prove the boy is who we say he is, should the dreadfort attempt to deny him. That is my price, Lord Davos. Smuggle me back, my liege lord, and I will take Stannis Baratheon as my king."
0: And the reason he needs a smuggler has to do with the presumed location of the pair. Davos wonders why Lord Wyman, who clearly has ships, would need his services and is told, I must have a man who sailed in darker waters and knows how to slip past dangers unseen and unmolested. And then Wex identifies a location on a map and it says, for half a heartbeat, Davos considered asking Wyman Manderly to send him back to the wolf's den, to Sir Bartimus and his tails, and garth with his lethal ladies. In the den, even prisoners ate porridge in the morning. But there were other places in the world where men were known to break their fast on human flesh.
2: So based on that statement, combined with a number of other hints, fans have surmised that Osha and Rikon somehow ended up on the island of Skagos. Somehow is indeed the operative term, since if we refer back to Brand 7 in A Clash of Kings, their destination was far from predetermined. The dying Maester Lewin insisted that they split Bran and Rickon, but didn't have any special insight into where they should go. Not to Castle Kerwin, or Deepwood Mott, or Torren Square, and at all costs, not into the arms of the Boltons to the east. Perhaps, he suggests, White Harbour, the Umbers, I do not know. War everywhere, each man against his neighbour... And winter coming. Such folly. Such black mad folly.
0: In the end, as they take their leave of each other, Asha tells the others, believe I'll try the East Gate and follow the King's Road a ways. A quick look at the map of the north shows that this route would get them nowhere near Skagos. In fact, to end up at Skagos in a direct line, more or less due northeast of Winterfell, they would have ended up passing perilously close to the Dreadfort.
2: Yes, that is unless they went as far south as White Harbour, as Lewin suggested, and took ship there. It's even possible they were brought to Skagos against their will somehow, and the fact that Wex Pike also ended up in White Harbour definitely leans us in this direction. All in all, it's extremely difficult to reconcile the beginning of their journey with where they apparently ended up without additional information. And so let's take a look at what it is that has readers so convinced that Skagos is that place.
0: When Davos saw the place Wex indicated on the map, he was horrified and thought of it as a place where men were known to break their fast on human flesh. This is a hint, but not conclusive in itself. Outside of the fact that Davos himself, in his first A Dance with Dragons chapter, had referred to Skagos as the Isle of Unicorns and Cannibals, where even the Blind Bastard, the first captain he'd served under, had feared to land, the principal mention of cannibalism on Skagos in the main series comes in Sam 2 in A Feast for Crows as Blackbird, bound for Braavos, makes its way past Skagos. Some songs said the Skags were cannibals, supposedly their warriors ate the hearts and livers of the men they slew. In ancient days, the Skagosi had sailed to the nearby Isle of Skane, seized its women, slaughtered its men, and ate them on a pebbled beach in a feast that lasted a fortnight.
2: This story is repeated in the world book. And clearly much has been made in Westerosi legend about this event, though it's worth noting that even Maester Yandel admits that while the Skagosi quote surely did once practice cannibalism, whether this custom still lingers to this day is a matter of much dispute.
0: It's also worth noting that, although the Skags or Skagosins or Skagosi as they're variously called aren't wildlings technically being more akin to the mountain clans and owing their allegiance to the lord of winterfell there is noted to be a tradition of cannibalism among the ice river clans of the free folk who dwell near the frozen shore it's possible that these traditions all extend back to a time when even the starks still practice blood sacrifice or even earlier to a time when all the first men of westeros were counted as one people
2: so we could debate the reasons why cannibalism might be practised by primitive people living in an inhospitable environment, but our focus is really on why the fandom has assumed that Davos was heading to Skagos. Besides the cannibalism comment, the only other real clue comes in John's wolf dream in A Dance with Dragons when he sees through Ghost's connection with his pack this vision of Shaggy Dog. Far off he could hear his packmates calling to him like to like. They were hunting too. A wild rain lashed down upon his black brother as he tore at the flesh of an enormous goat, washing the blood from his side where the goat's long horn had raked him.
0: So in that passage, it's the goat with its singular horn that draws readers' attention. For besides cannibalism... The other thing Skagos is noted for is unicorns. Going back to Sam's journey aboard Blackbird, as they pass the island, Sam thinks of some of the things he's read about its residents. They lived in caves and grim mountain fastnesses and rode great shaggy unicorns to war.
2: Regarding unicorns, the world book has this to say. The unicorns of Skagos were once scoffed at by maesters at the citadel the occasional unicorn horn offered by disreputable merchants has never been more than the horn of a kind of whale hunted by the whalers of Ebe. However, horns of quite a different kind, reputed to be from Skagos, have been seen by the maesters at Eastwatch upon occasion. It is also said that those seafarers brave enough to trade on Skagos have glimpsed the stone-born lords riding great shaggy horned beasts, monstrous mounts so sure-footed they have been known to climb the sides of mountains.
0: And we also hear in the world book that unicorns can still be found on Ib and that in the grasslands of Essos there was once a race called the Hairy Men, quote, shaggy savage warriors who rode to battle on unicorns. Though larger than the Ibnese of the present, they may well have been their forebears. Given Ib's relative proximity to Skagos and their possible connection with a race known for the practice of riding unicorns, we could speculate on a connection between the Skagosi and the Ibnese. But again, what we really want to establish is the connection between the map, Wexpike, Davos, and Skagos.
2: And basically, the sum total of things leading to that connection are the handful of references to cannibalism on Skagos and the vision of Shaggy Dog devouring a shaggy one-horned goat, paired with a bunch of references to Skagosi and their unicorns. So if the fandom is correct in the assumption that Davos headed for Skagos from White Harbour, and we think they are, what did his journey look like, and what should we expect the outcome to be in the Winds of Winter?
0: Well, first of all, we'd have to assume that Lord Wyman gave him a ship. It wasn't ships that he lacked, after all. It was the right kind of captain. While sailors from White Harbour might be river traders or fisher folk who had, quote, never sailed beyond the bite... Davos had the experience to sail a ship in dangerous waters as his famous mission to Storm's End proves. And Davos knows firsthand how dangerous those waters could be from his days with the Blind Bastard to his journey south from Eastwatch in Salador San's fleet, where we're told that two galleys had been driven onto the rocks of Skagos in a storm, which wreckage Sam saw sometime later as he sailed past the island in similarly stormy weather.
2: But... Assuming there is safe harbour to be found on the island after a perilous journey, and mentions of trading suggest that there is, and also assuming that Rickon and Osha are also to be found there, though we have yet to learn what inspired Wex Pike's certainty that they would, what happens when he finds them? Would he have Wex along to help identify the pair? Having located and retrieved them, we have to assume he would be bound to return them to White Harbour, where Lord Wyman has left his son Wireless and possibly also Robert Glover, awaiting the outcome of the mission.
0: Considering the value that will be placed upon Rickon Stark, we have to wonder if he and his companions will be sent on to intersect with Wyman, Stannis, or even Jon Snow, or if he would be held in safety at the Merman's court while Davos went north with messages. This seems to us to be the most likely outcome in the short term, and we will repeat that by the opening of the Winds of Winter, enough time has passed since Davos was given his mission that we might well get to see a first-hand account of, or at least a memory of, a recent visit to Skagos before Davos perhaps returns to Castle Black seeking Stannis and potentially arrives in the wake of Jon Snow's assassination.
2: There are other possibilities, of course, but this is the one that seems most likely to us, since his POV there will be valuable, while Stannis has both Asher and Theon with him. Having two POVs at Castle Black would allow Melisandre, for instance, to strike out in a different direction, like the Nightfort, or perhaps Davos could gain a new mission for himself. As we've said, it might be he who encourages Selyse and Shireen to leave the dangers of Castle Black, or he who manages to strike an agreement between factions.
0: There's also the possibility that he hears a false story of Stannis' death and believes it, which would be a neat parallel to his own reported death being believed by Stannis. Whatever result this would bring is hard to say, we do think that Davos's arc in The Winds of Winter will be about him finding his own identity and ceasing to define himself in Stannis' terms. We have so little to go on that it's really all speculation at this point, although we definitely see the everyman outliving his master and becoming his own man.
2: And what about the object of his quest? Does Rickon Stark have a role to play in the story? Is his miraculous reappearance part of a chain of events that will lead to the downfall of the Boltons? Will Lord Wyman try to set his own candidates in opposition to the other Stark heirs that might appear? For that matter, did Lord Wyman even survive the incident inside Winterfell in Theon's final dance chapter where he was cut by a fray swordsman.
0: Our thoughts are that Rickon might return, as his other siblings are certainly bound to do as well, but that ultimately, his importance to the narrative will be minimal. Will he die like his brother Rob did, leaving the choice of Ned's sons to be between the cripple and the bastard? Or will he just fade into the background, as he seems to have done so far? We all know George doesn't hold back on tragedy, and since we feel the endgame for how Stark will be in the hands of our four point-of-view siblings, we tend to lean towards a more tragic outcome. But only time will indeed tell us if Rickon and Shaggy Dog end up as the ultimate Shaggy Dog story, a narrative device of a long-winded tale characterized by irrelevant incidents ending in a meaningless anticlimax. Did George actually hide a clue to the fate of Rickon Stark in the name of his direwolf revealed way back in A Game of Thrones? We can only hope that the pages of The Winds of Winter will reveal that answer to us. He wished Rob were with them now. I'd tell him I could fly, but he wouldn't believe, so I'd have to show him. I bet that he could learn to fly, too. Him and Arya and Sansa, even baby Rickon and Jon Snow. We could all be ravens and live in Maester Luwin's rookery. Thanks so much for joining us for this installment of our Winds of Winter Primer. We'll be back soon with part three, in which we'll be moving into the Riverlands for a look at what's going to be happening there. And don't forget to catch our weekly live streams, where we'll discuss a lot more about the characters from this episode with guests. And now, as always, it's time to pay credit where credit is due. Thanks so much to George R.R. Martin for giving us so many characters to discuss. And thanks to Kevin MacLeod and Kai Engel for allowing us to use their music in our production. And we'll end today, as usual, with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. Thanks to these amazing people. Zaynab, Ebb, Yvonne, Woodside for Life, Half Halfhand, Virginie, Hema Helminth the Sellsword Sentinel, Sir Terence Knight of the Cedars, Terry, Tanner, Steve, That Shiny Bastard, Spentrails, Cern, Sophia, Sherry, Sir Swift, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sebastian, Scott, Sam, Ryan, Richard, Rachel, PJ, Peter Pebble, Patrick, Michael M. Mary, Melinda, Matthew, Maria, Monaro Geek TV, Matt L, Liam, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Matt, Sir Galahu of What, Tree Girl, Kevin, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Catherine Judson, John Aris, writer of the Ice Dragon, Sonarion, The White Storm, Joseph, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, Goldie Juke, Brendan P. Fish, Jamie the Joint Slayer, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Engveld, Iden, History of Westeros, Greg, Jeffrey, Felix, Ezra, Emily of the Eerie, Eric, Dutch Defender of the Berm, Direwolf, Dennis, Dimitri B., David... Dan the Good, Eric, Sin Bobby Joe, Crimson Kate, Sir Archibald Cadogan, Convenience or Death, Clay, Clarissa, Maddie and Jessica, Christian, Chris, Charitable Rereadings, Camille, Brian, Chris, Biloba, Arion, Nessie the Questing Beast, Oakenfist, Amber, Amanda, Alex, and AJ. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on iTunes, YouTube, or Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, email, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now.
1: Market. Market.